Welcome to the Big Fat Podcast, my man. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, I uh, I broke a lot of rules today. You came here. We meant. I always tell Cody, "Hey, don't don't ask him any questions. Don't talk about anything interesting." And we've gotten into uh, all kinds of things that are interesting, and uh, we pretty much had two podcasts already that we didn't even hit record on. But I'm glad that I've been able to kind of get to know you. And now that I know there's some things that I do want to uh, hit on and talk about with you. So thanks for taking the time to come down here and uh, hang out with me at Big Fast Studios. Oh, I, I look forward to it. Now, this is a great opportunity for me to get myself out there. I mean, some people know me in the town. A lot of people don't. But uh, this is a great opportunity to kind of express who I am and all the things I do than what maybe some people just know me for. Yeah, and most people know you for your photography. Yeah, mostly. I mean, because uh, I do have the high school account. So I have been doing, I in 2018, I took over um, and we created my banner program, which I create custom composited photography banners that make kind of cool for the kids that they've been doing up in Billings for uh, Those look great. I think yeah. those look super professional. I'm, I've I've been impressed with those. I didn't know that was you doing that. No, oh, that was me. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I kind of, I had this idea because when I came back home back in 08, um, you know, no one was doing it. We were still shooting photos around here from like 1980. You know, you had the classic just memory made with a little cutout picture and a little five by seven. And I'm like, well, that's kind of old school. You know, that's that's the old technique. And everything's doing digital now. They do digital memory mates where it's an eight by 10 and you custom and make them look really cool. We've been doing that in, in the cities for, you know, probably since probably early 2000s, I would think. Um, there's a guy I've been doing it forever. And I'm like, well, I can do that. Let's bring it to this little town, see if I can do something. Well, they look good. And that, that kind of got you like in the door then with the schools. Yep. Um, but you mentioned something though, and I didn't realize this until um, actually April was, was telling me a little bit about you. And she, she always is like, oh yeah, I grew up with him. I'm like, really? I'm always surprised. I don't know. Like I didn't grow up here. And, um, but you grew up here in Columbus you were, because uh, I want to go back and figure and and hear about a little bit of that part right there, because you're kind of an old timer. You're like, oh, a lot of people don't know me around here, but you're kind of, you're an old timer from around here now, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, uh, I've been, I was born in 1980. Tell me, born. so tell yeah. me about that though, because that was, a, that was an interesting thing you brought up with earlier. Uh, if you, if you will tell me about that, like yeah. you weren't just like born at the hospital. How did that happen? <laughs> so. I didn't uh, learn this till recently. So um, really, you didn't learn this story till recently. Like this year, I didn't know exactly. I mean, I knew I was born in the town. I just thought I was born at the Stillwater Hospital, which isn't, yeah. which isn't there anymore. It's gone, right? It's yeah. it's not here. So um, yeah, I was I was born here at Stillwater Hospital in 1980, uh, December 31st. Yeah, yeah. My at least parents. that's what you thought. Well, yeah, that's what I thought, but um, I didn't know anything about my delivery or anything okay. else and i really don't know to extent of everything completely but um so my mom went into labor i was on my due date i mean i was on time i was an on-time baby so she was helpful helpful for that or thankful for that but um yeah it was my dad who was a dentist at the time and another dentist in town i think it was See, doc, and, and doc, I think... Swan, doc swanson was the, old, the other dentist that where okay. the library is now that's where his office was okay so and or because april she remembered that your dad was the dentist she told me about that yeah so and he's he had a practice for 35 or 36 years i think okay and it's where the title company is by down on valley there but okay um 
But yeah, I think maybe it was Doc Swanson had that office. I can't remember how that worked. I My dad would probably be yelling at me right now correcting me because he likes to do that. But um, anyways, so she went into labor and they went to the hospital. Well, back then there was no 911 you know yeah. 1980 um and everything else and the doctors didn't live in town so my mom's doctor wasn't in town it was just my dad and doc swanson and a nurse i think and they delivered me so my i i didn't have a i the doctor was in town he was out in the foothills so he didn't get in town in time i guess so i my dad and so it was at the hospital it, it was just, at the hospital but it wasn't wasn't with, with the doctor not, not it was with, with the dentist and another dentist Two dentists, two doctors. I mean, they're doctors. Yeah, they're doctors. Excuse me. Yeah, but I don't mean to take anything away from them. But yeah, that's not what they do. No, I mean they don't delivering babies. Isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and their kind of thing. So I didn't. I didn't know that. My mom said, "No," and she's like, "You know, your dad was there." And I mean, it's amazing to me though that you just found that out. Like, if I was your dad, I'd have been like, "Yeah, I'm the man." Like, I he he might have, but I I didn't know that. But I guess I every year on your birthday would be all about me. I would be like, yeah, I'm the man. I brought you into this world. My dad's claim to me being born on the 31st was that he got a tax credit. Because uh. <laughs> he made the deadline, right? Yeah. So I got the tax credit. But yeah, I did know that. My mom was just telling me that with my wife this year. I think it was right around Christmas time. We were sitting there just talking. And she's like, you know, talking about babies. And like, yeah, yeah, we, you know, the doctor wasn't in town. So I was in labor. and That's pretty intense. Yeah, and that's not the only time that my dad actually um, and old Doc Swanson uh, did uh, kind of a procedure in the hospital uh, sometime in the middle of like 80, I want to say probably, I was probably 5 or 6, 85, 86. My grandfather was, uh, he did drywall his whole life and that kind of stuff, did construction work. And uh, he went to like a Forby's restaurant after church yeah. one day, uh-huh. always eating ice cream and he he didn't see the toothpick in it, and he swallowed the toothpick. Oh, my it was gosh. About, about this long. Okay. Oh, my. So he didn't know it. It just went down because he just took a bite of ice cream, and it just went down. Well, he was up at the house here, and he was doing some work. Um, we used to live off fourth up here, and he did work, and all of a sudden, he just grabbed his side. How do you swallow something that long? Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I, that's that's a good question. And, um, and he just hit his side and went down, and my dad was there, and... They looked over at my grandfather and they're like, oh my God, what happened? And went over and uh, grabbed him and, and had to help pick him up. And they took him to the hospital because they just it shot down in his stomach. You know, it, it kind of got lodged down there. And uh, yeah, I thought, th- I, in my head, I remember that as a kid, like seeing my grandpa in the hospital afterwards and seeing like the picture of the toothpick. And, you know, I can vaguely remember. I mean, I wasn't. Does somebody still have that you know, picture? Remember, I don't know, but like remember. I'd have that framed like you know being young and remember my grandpa in the hospital I thought for some reason my head of course you don't remember things probably as well you do back that far but I thought that was in Billings no I was here at the Stillwater Hospital and my dad and and the other doc did the surgery like they what do you mean did this like went in there like he's a dentist they're they're both dentists I, I yeah yeah went in and did the surgery isn't that crazy that is crazy. I, my mom, I want to learn if, more if my, about If my this. mom watches, and my dad should probably correct me on some of this stuff, but I'm, I almost swear she told me that too. She goes, "No, it was your dad, and doc, and the doc that went in and and did that surgery, emergency surgery." When you say the doc, was are you uh, saying Swanson. Doc, doc uh, Swanson? I, I believe it was Doc Swanson. I might be wrong with the name. I'm, I'm sure I'll get corrected on this and get yelled at later. But I think oh it was Doc gosh. Swanson. But I mean, back then though, you got to remember that a lot. Of, I mean, like my dad, you know, they go through full. 
you know, dentist school, you know, they, they are doctors. Yeah, right. So they, they, they had they an got, but I mean, it's not like they're doing open heart surgery or anything. Anyway, yeah. But I mean, I guess in an emergency situation, that's what they did. And yeah, that's, they removed that toothpick out of there and he's fine. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I get squeamish about that stuff. Like that is just like, uh, I don't know why, but I, things like that make me like, Oh, I oh, yeah. can't even imagine. I mean, I'm sure my dad's got stories. Cause I mean, he's, I, as a kid, I can remember, you know, guys coming from the mine and having rock slides and stuff and yeah teeth and stuff getting knocked Ugh. out and stuff and jaws broken and stuff i'm sh- and i know he's been called in for some of those i remember those back in the day i don't remember him doing them but i remember him yeah. leaving to go do stuff because there was an accident yeah back in in the 80s and stuff but i have yeah. a couple of uh i have a couple scars from the mine i didn't work up there too terribly long as some of those guys but uh I'm kind of glad I have them now, and I'm, now I can be like, yeah, I was an underground miner, hard rock miner, blah blah blah. I got one on my, I got one in my eyebrow where I, I got my eyebrow split. I looked up a little bit too late. I was turning off my jack leg, mm-hmm. and I had my hard hat on. I here's a little story. I did not have my safety glasses on. Oh. And I looked up, and because they would get covered in water and oil is coming down all the time. Did you ever? Did you have you ever worked at the mine? No. Okay. I haven't been. I okay. mean, I, I as a kid, I did the tours and stuff. But yeah. I, mean, I never, I never worked at the mine. Well, the thing was, is I was a, I was a miner. I can't remember if I was a miner. I think it was a miner three still. And so, if you get injured as a miner three or or as anything you will get locked in at your current pay grade well minor three is you'll get locked in at your pay grade for like a year maybe the policy's changed now so um as a minor three you're just working hard and you're everybody's grunt and you don't want to be locked in like all you can think about is i gotta just prove myself to these guys so i can get to minor two and then now you're going to get like your hourly wage and you're going to get a certain number of hours uh, toward the contract every day. Uh, it's a it's a small number of hours, but you don't want to get locked in as a minor three. So I, it wasn't that big of a deal, but I look up, I this rock comes down about just probably about the, I don't know, not quite the size of a tennis ball. And it just misses the brim of my hard hat and hits me right here, boom. And the thing is so sharp. I like dropped, like, I don't know how far it dropped from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. I say the ceiling, we call it the back in there. Anyway, I don't even know why I'm telling you this big old long story, other than I'm proud that I have some scars now from the mine because it seems like a whole lifetime away now that I've been doing this other thing. But it's so funny because that thing hit me. I went down on the ground and I was like, oh my gosh, kind of lit, lit up some stars. I got up and I'm trying to clean it up. And I've got these sleeves. We all wear like these uh, Kevlar sleeves to keep you from getting cut up and you have to wear them. I think I had an extra set or something in my lunchbox and they are like not clean. I'm grabbing these things. I'm trying to mop my face. And a partner of mine, one of the guys comes down there to check on me. And I turn to him and I'm like, hey, um, like I got, I got hit earlier. Is it like, can you see anything? He's like, his face was just like, I was like, apparently a mess. I had blood all over my face. Head wounds. <laughs> I couldn't see it down there. It just kept bleeding. He's like, oh my gosh. And he's like, He's, it was so funny because he's like, um, he's like, were you wearing all your stuff? I'm like, dude, I wasn't wearing my my glasses. I couldn't see all the water and the the oil was coming down covering my glasses and I couldn't see, so I took them off. And he's like, oh, dude, you're gonna be so busted. Where's your glasses? So he's trying to get me mopped up. He's like, I'm going to the lunchroom. I'm gonna get you some paper towels or something. Or we gotta get some water, water bottles. You gotta get this cleaned up before somebody sees us. And um, 
he comes back and then he grabs my glasses and he's like dude you had to be wearing your glasses and he takes the glasses and he's like going over there on the rock and he's like about where where did you get hit and he's like trying to find where and he's like trying to scratch the glasses on the on the wall so it looks like i was wearing my glasses oh my gosh all of what we did because i was nervous about getting locked in as a minor three luckily it happened on a friday i went up after shift my head was kind of swollen right here it was split open pretty good and uh, i put my hood up as we were up on the waiting to get released to go to the showers and um so i could get out of there and uh, that way i could come back on our first day back and be like oh yeah that happened on days off and not get in trouble hmm. anyway so i that was minor so minor but now i have this thing that makes me look like i'm angry all the time or very stern or something i don't know i had people like in photos will be like dude why are you so serious i'm like it's a scar that gives me a wrinkle and everybody thinks that i'm overly serious or something i can't imagine the stuff these guys were seeing though coming down from the mine and the injuries they see because those guys up there have real injuries i did a podcast with my buddy shelby burrows Mm -hmm. i saw a rock come down about if you were to put like two footballs end to end together Mm -hmm. i saw a rock come down on the back of his head and neck it would have broke my neck i'd have been dead um come down on him and and hit him back here and uh i think it's spooked him scared him more than hurt him mm-hmm. it would have broke my neck yeah uh he swore and was cussing and i was like dude are you okay and he stormed off and then came back and kept working like that would have killed me yeah. i i saw it come out of the back come loose and come down on top of him yeah and i'm, I'm sure when my dad was going in on you know getting called into the hospital and stuff and i know there was things like that just you know a rock came loose but and the guy turned around and you know catching the teeth or whatever oh but i know gosh. you know i i'm i'm sure he's oh god i'm sure he's got more stories on that but um i know for a few times that he told me that yeah he's like i got called in because uh you know they had to stabilize him enough so they could get him to billings and stuff and oh my had gosh and they were asking him whatever to do to help splinted i don't i don't have any splinted jaw but i mean just yeah yeah something to just, something. Just, just to maybe help with bleeding or whatever the the situation would be but um yeah i'm like i said i didn't know and that kind of stuff and i'll i'll text my mom to make sure this story is completely true but i'm i swear to god she told me all it she's like no you're like the doctor was in the foothills and i was in labor and he he was in on it so i maybe the doctor the real i don't know who the real doctor was back then but i know that my dad did do some of he, that kind of stuff because i mean they they were just filled in, in yeah i mean we had to i mean there wasn't what yeah. we have now you right know, we have way better care around here than we we did back then for sure wow so growing up though in that kind of a household your dad's at the local dentist did you not ever did you not ever have that desire to go down that path um you know not really um you know, my, my mom's worked at the Silversmiths since it started. Well, within a couple years of being started there, she's been there 43 years now. Wow. Incredible. So she's been there a startup. So she's kind of her story in her own where, you know, she, she didn't go to school. You know, I mean, she graduated from high school, but she didn't go to college or anything to be anything. She just kind of started with a company ground up and yeah. it worked all the way up. She went through, you know, secretary with Kent Williams. And then you know, I think she did sales and then she went up and now she's the HR director. Oh, wow. And that kind of stuff. So she's been doing that for a long, long time. And my dad, you know, he got done with dental school and they, they moved back here because he went to school in Minnesota. Um, and graduated from University of Minnesota with his dental degree. Um, okay. And he did his undergrad at Carleton, which is in Northfield up in, in, Minnesota, in Minnesota, too. It's just another a school that he got a wrestling scholarship from because he graduated from West, and my mom was 
Uh, she's out of senior. She went to senior in Billings. So they're all, okay. they're all always Montana people here. But um, when they came back and everything else, my mom was you know, just working those jobs, and my dad was starting his practice and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I was I was okay with blood. I mean, I've never been bad about it, but being a dentist, I just never thought about putting my hand in people's mouths for... It was really not your it thing, just, huh? It never was. I've always been a creative person, and I think that's what kind of changed it. Not that my dad... My dad's pretty creative. He's he's done some sculpting and, and that kind of stuff. He's made some animal sculpts. I think in year, dentistry, you got to be a little bit creative, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, mean... Definitely now. I mean, now with all the tech... I mean, he, he kind of stopped his practice, but I mean, he was using all the Cerex stuff where you're making your crowns, you know, where yeah. they have the mills and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, he is creative. So, I mean, I think I get some of that from him. But it uh, just wasn't sure. uh, going it into just, that. I just didn't think I wanted to be a dentist. You know, um, I, you know, as most kids do, I, I mean, around here, we were all sports, growing yeah. up with kids, outdoors kids. I mean, you, you know, you talked with Cole Walter. I mean, that's what we did. We just were, right. we lived outdoors uh, to do anything. And, um, you know, I just never thought about being a dentist. I just never was something that um, was on my mind. And I don't think it's because of what he did. It's just, it just didn't really, wasn't my appeal, I guess. So then how... How early did you f- kind of, did you figure out, because I know you went to school and I want to hear about that. How, then at what point did you start to figure out like, hey, I like video. I like uh, photography. How did that work then? How did you find out that that's how you, the road you want to go down? So school was great because uh, when, we, when we had FFA uh, back then, uh, we actually started the first broadcast um, award for the entire organization. Um, we kind of put, helped push that through. So as a freshman, we came in and they were already starting to kind of at the high school, they did, um, in the old gymnasium, they wanted to do a live broadcast of the games, which back in, you know, 94 wasn't really, a, it wasn't what it is today. I mean, nowhere near, and there was no internet back then. Oh, yeah. So, um, so they, the teacher actually the time, 94, it was like, just getting started but nobody could even conceive that they were going to be streaming on it well no i mean i guess i mean i, I remember the old aol days i mean i, so yeah, I was probably exactly. right about a freshman so yeah. but i mean it wasn't a, a thing it was never thought about you know with what we have now for broadcast well, yeah no I mean, of course those things were just glimpses in the future you know yeah but um they uh, the teacher at the time it was uh mr larson um he went to the state and they went we uh got a broadcast channel from the state so it was channel six and um, it couldn't. It didn't broadcast over the entire state, though. So it was just locally. So we had it grounded to the nursing home and the hospital, so they could watch live broadcast games. And so we set it up where we had two on-air personalities and a camera operator, and we would go to the games and do live on-air work. I mean, we would do stats. We would announce players, uh, play-by-play. And it also broadcasts on, a, I think it was a radio frequency, I believe. I can't remember which one it was. But so the games were broadcast live. You know, it's, you know, 90 or, you know, the mountain here. Yeah. 93, the mountain, they do live broadcasts of the game still on the radio station. Right. For playoffs and that kind of stuff, which is cool. So we were doing that, but we were doing that as kids. Yeah. So you're like catching the bugger. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of, it was, and it was, I think everything hit at the right time for me there because right after that, you know, internet became thing. But what we use now for photography work, Photoshop was a thing it became the first program uh, which is what i used to do all my photo editing and everything else it was version 3.1 when they brought it my senior year in 99 um into the high school and we had a teacher and and we were um he just came in and said hey we're gonna do this 
program and everything else. And at the time, we were just goof around as kids. You know, all I had was paint brushes and everything right. else. We're painting really bad things, and we weren't photo editing anything. But I was just like, oh, this is kind of neat. And I started making some kind of low end, really low end graphics that. I mean, today people would laugh at, but I know, right? Just kind of having some fun, you know. Yeah. And it's that kind of bug kind of took over, and I always loved art. Art was always one of my favorite classes. I mean, I love science too, but art was just the thing. It just kind of captured me, kind of let me be free. Yeah. And kind of design because I was like, in my head, I'm like, I want to do a job where I may be doing similar things every day, but not the same thing every day. I don't want to just be. You know, if I'm a mechanic, I don't want to just be turning a wrench on the same vehicle or a different vehicle every day. It just doesn't have enough to keep me excited. I hear you. So, and then so we, and it was fun because we took a vacation down to Florida. My brother was pretty young. We went down to Disney and we went through Orlando studio. And uh, that's where I got my first look at special effects. So we did Universal tour okay. with my dad and we went into this, it was a monster and it was like Terminator. I remember it was a Terminator set, and so they had a monster uh, come in the room and everything else, and had a big green screen. And my dad got called out of the audience. There was like 50 of us, and then they put him in the chair, and they're like, "Okay, so sit here in the chair, and when the monster comes, you know, be afraid, and then we're gonna morph your face." So I'm watching my dad up there, and he's acting and everything else, but I'm looking over the corner at the guy in the corner running a computer, and he does the green screen. All of a sudden, he's putting in the whole ship background like the inside of the spaceship ah. and he's showing and all yeah. of a sudden these lights and stuff going off and then you look at my dad's face and he's done something where the side of my dad's face starts like sliding down the right side of his face and he's sitting there live and i'm going oh this is cool what is this i want to do that that is wow this is cool you know because it was I know it's funny. I'm from Montana. I've never yeah. seen I mean I I mean Star Wars, you know. But even but back just, then, I mean, that was pretty advanced like oh man uh video technology back then. Yeah. Nowadays it's like I'm sure we have more power on our phones than what that guy had to be able to do that back then. Now people are sitting there green screening while they're live and streaming and broadcasting all over the world and right there. But for that time period. Oh, ninety nine? Yeah, that's, that was epic. Oh, it was huge. Huge. So um it got done. Um, everyone walked out of the room to go on to the next um, exhibit or explore. And I stayed with my dad and we talked with, I don't remember, it was a director or whoever who's in the studio. And I was just asking him, like, I was just caught for whatever reason. I'm like, that is cool. And I'm like, is this what they use? Because I, I mean, I've been seeing some of the behind the scenes from like the Star Wars that had come out yeah. in the 90s. And you, you kind of saw that George Lucas had kind of graduated from the, the puppeteering stuff to that they've graduate more going like, into some computer yeah, generated I'm like, stuff i'm like is there a job in this you know is this actually a career and the guy there was like yeah he goes i'm a uh he was like a a, a senior animator and he'd worked on i don't know a couple of different films and stuff and he goes yeah we we shoot all this stuff and then we use computer generated software to make 3d you know 3d was kind of a slow thing at that time it wasn't what it is now and they were able to start putting all the special effects in, removing people. And the whole thought of just taking someone out of an environment or taking the environment away from somebody and then you can put anything you want in there. Yeah. And make it jazzed up and cool. And I was like, yeah, that that sounds like something fun, something something I would like to do. But then I was like, where am I going to go to school for this? So we get back home. Nobody. I mean, the the resource or the, uh, what is it, the counselor, she's yeah. like, 
I don't need. I, I don't even know what. That I don't is. even know where 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 do you you could go like that. I'm like, well, it's got to be California, right? It's got to be a California <laughs> yeah, school because that's, that's where everything's at. It's Hollywood, right. you know. Right. So I'm like, okay. So I started looking, and you know, I found a couple of different places, and then. Um, this is kind of big thinking for a small town Montana kid, though, for you to go down there, get that exposure to that and catch that kind of a bug. Like, that's kind of big thinking. Like, there's not, that's not everyday stuff. That's thinking outside of the box. You know, and I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't say I was really adventurous, but I was just like, in my head, I'm like, I want to do something that is different. Yeah. Not, not everyone does. And something that someday that I could go into Hollywood make it to a film and go up and see my name at the end of the credits and go, yeah, yeah, that, I worked on that. I remember doing that scene, that scene, that scene, that scene. I was just like, yes, that's, that's what I want to do. And so through some research and everything else, um, I ended up finding a school in Colorado in Denver. So I went to the art Institute of Colorado. It is our, it was our art international. It's now been dissolved a couple years ago. It was bought out and it doesn't really exist. I think there's one school, left in Pennsylvania, the main school, but they had a computer animation degree, a bachelor's degree. <laughs> and I was like, well, I like Colorado. And we had, I had some friends of the family. My dad's old college roommates lived there and I like Denver, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, sweet. Okay. That's not that far. You know, I can still come home for Christmas. You know, it's not a big plane flight I can drive. You know, it's got mountains. You yeah, know? yeah. So, it's, you know, it won't completely. I was more worried, as you know, not being a city kid going, man, I just want to have some nature yeah. around me. You know, yeah. I can't just be locked into a city. I think I'd go nuts. And I eventually proved that to myself. I can't be in a big city for yeah. too long. But um, Denver wasn't as big as it is now. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. huge now. I mean, when I lived there, Fort Collins in Denver, there was still some gap in there, and now it's just a it's all one thing. Suburb. It's all the way, all the way up to Cheyenne now. Yeah, I mean it's packed. So it wasn't as, but it was a great, great time. I mean, I had a great time in in Denver. I spent four years, got my uh, media arts and animation degree, uh, graduated in two thousand and three, and and this whole time I'm having great time. I mean, special effects. We had um, some great professors that worked. Um, I can't think of his name. He worked on Charlie Brown for 30 years. Oh, really? So he was on my, so we did traditional animation. So when I said I wanted computer side was my thing. I was an okay artist, but a lot of the kids coming in were coming from classic, classically trained where they had life drawing classes, like with nude models and seniors in high school where I've never drawn a person yeah. in my life, you know? And so I was like, I didn't know if that was my route. So I was like, Oh, I don't know if this is going to work. I just want to do the computer side. I want the visuals and I want to do 3d. Well, I had to learn everything, but like I said, I got to work with great guys because I had to do the old two-line, old-school Walt Disney animation. We had to do those. I mean, I had to make a 30-second uh, cartoon, and you have to draw 12 frames of art to make one second. Ugh. So, I mean, it's a lot of work, and then you got to yeah. lay a page down, and you got to fold it back and forth, and you got to make it so you can see the next movement, right. and you got to plan it all out, and then you got to, I mean, it was, it was a bear. I mean, I really struggled for a while, and I kind of found my style of drawing. Uh, I'm more of a conceptual artist, um, like a you know, finishing artist is really, they go in for all the details and that kind of work. Mine is just like, I can get it into place and get it there, and then that would go in a real studio, I would draw the beginnings of the, all the movements 
and all the fine details would go to the next guy. So I wouldn't okay. do all of them. But when you're doing it yourself, you got to do, do it. it all. You got to do it all. You got to find timing. You got to, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. And we did like old stop motion animation. So we did clay, oh clay sculptures and paper where you literally take a cutout character, t- take it and then you take his arms and you draw on the side and then you take a piece of thread and you thread in his arm so you can make the arm go oh, really? up and down. So you had some movement. So yeah. it was like, you know paper choppy yeah but i mean we did that original style animation they taught us from the ground up from doing line work all the way into 3d wow the only thing i was doing remotely close to that was uh you know we didn't have smartphones like the kids now do but uh i would sit in church and take the hymn book (laughs) and uh do a little line figures Mm -hmm. guy and then go to the next page yeah and then do the flip thing and sit there Mm -hmm. and flip those things and i i don't know like have him doing whatever but that was how i'd pass those that time sitting there doing all that so we used to do that because we did flip books all the time and so i would we had to take you know general classes and that kind of stuff and the one i I had to take it twice because I just hated it. It was art history. It's the most boring thing on earth, and I can't believe people still get degrees in it. But it's just you have to, like, identify, like, broke periods and renaissance periods by just looking at a picture. I could have cared less. So we had friends in our class, and we would make picture books while in class, and we'd make picture books of, like, Tweety Bird flipping each other off, and then we'd go over there and flip them at each other. (laughs) Because we were animators. Um, it was fun because the school was a uh, it was a uh, old building right next to the Capitol building. So I mean it was right downtown. Oh yeah, right downtown. So Twelfth and Lincoln, and the Capitol building's on like Fifteenth. So like three blocks away, and there's the Denver Capitol building. You know, yeah. the Capitol. So it was cool being in that area, Sixteenth Street Mall. Sixteenth Street Mall. Well, it was Pepsi Center at the time. Now it's yeah. Ball Arena. I mean, I'm a huge Avalanche fan. I got hooked in the hockey back then. But uh, you know, what's funny is that. Uh, so my brother, he was the uh, the mascot for the Denver Nuggets for 30 years through all that period. Oh, cool. And so there was a couple summers I went and actually stayed with him, and and I was a stagehand, um, and I worked at the. Uh, McNichols Arena mm-hmm. was what it was back then and I would do concerts up at Red Rocks and sometimes um, we would go down on 16th Street Mall and I'd have a video camera and he would be just doing stuff on 16th Street Mall now it would have been like it would have been like TikTok content that would get millions of views like the stuff he was doing and, and as a mascot and we actually did some other stuff just, just even out of work that we were shooting down there on 16th Street Mall so anyway I'm familiar with all that stuff but this is all like pre, you know, all like all the stuff we were doing now, it just cracks me up or doing then cracks me up because uh, that would have been like, we would have been posting content, content, content. And we were doing that down in those areas. So we use 16th street mall to buy get beer money. <laughs> How would you do that? Oh, so um, we had a, so the arts, it wasn't just animation. They had graphic designers, they had photographers, which there was a photography degree in there and they had a culinary school. So it was a big, it's an art school. So yeah. all, so do you well, guys like go down there and set up and oh, like do art so, for people? No. So we had guys in there. It wasn't that one wholesome. guy could, was Scottish and could play the bagpipes. We had a guy from Australia that could play the didgeridoo. And so we would go down and pretty much put on a little concert down like midway down there and just panhandle. Yeah. Um, Oh my God, did that work well? Oh, I bet. Um, I, I remember the best time in four hours. One time we made $800. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Those guys are just playing bagpipes and then playing the didgeridoo. And we were just sitting there guarding the cases. And, you know, um, we had a couple of gals that were, um, they were graphic designers, but they were also into dance. And so they just did like really hippie minute dance routines yeah. in there. And people would just stand there and we'd had crowds. And, but 
a keg back then was like <laughs> 70 bucks <laughs> and so i mean we we did we would just go down and and when we had we four uh, we had um, a four-store four story apartment called the gotham city apartments animators were going nuts because of batman you know they're like yeah we live in the gotham city apartments right so the third floor was the party floor i don't know why it just got established that way it was five floors and so we were like all right it's party party time everyone third floor congregate on the yep. third floor yep so then we go and that was a time when subway you, you could get a big sub sandwiches and and beer and that's what we did were you parties. guys getting any kind of a permit to be down on 16th street mall or are you just no. showing up no man it was the cops the cops are funny because they were they were the bike cops mm-hmm. and they were smart enough and i'm using that air court smart enough to just ride down the center but they always came from the same direction and 16th street mall you would know it's it's long it's oh yeah it's you had to watch sh- out there was like buses going up or, and down yeah. there wasn't driving on it but you could get on these buses yeah, the, that the were like a trolley yeah, yeah. yeah the little trolley but the cops would come from the same direction and it you could see for almost half a mile and so one of the jobs of us to do while we we're playing this music was be the lookout and as you would see the cops coming you would take the guitar or the the case that we had we had a guitar case i don't know why we had a guitar uh, guitar case because we had a didgeridoo and a you know bagpipes yeah but that's where we had our money and we'd close it together and we'd run around the block the backs and it's city block so it's not a short like around here like you know 50 150 yards maybe but we'd have to go all the way around the cops would go by they go out to the end of the the, the union station and disappear and we come back up and set back up and start playing again and he would just cycle it because they would never come back and the union square where we were was like a quarter of the distance away and they would just we did just circles on them but i don't think they really cared too much because they knew we were college students i mean yeah. we weren't i mean there was your homeless population and right. they, they were more about them because of the drugs you yeah know, they were shooting up needles and that kind of stuff still then but um i think as kids i think they probably would have just given us a warning yeah. Oh, yeah we had no permits we were college kids so i have to admit to you what we were up to down there one time we went down there and uh so my brother has the idea he's like hey i wonder i always see these guys panhandling <laughs> at it, like downtown and all these other areas like let's go and i'm gonna dress up and like i'm now i feel bad like it's terrible probably right now yeah. nowadays people would be upset about this but i'm gonna admit so I had a video camera and he went and stood at some off ramp. Like he called the police and asked them like, what are the rules on this? Like, I can't get arrested, but like, what are the rules on this? And they just said, Hey, uh, yeah, no, it's not illegal. As long as you're just not being aggressive and you're you, whatever, you can stand there and hold a sign. He's like, that's all I want to do is I want to stand here and hold a sign. It was kind of our own little social experiment. Right. And we just wanted to see what happened. What, how did people react to that? And I had a video camera and he went and stood at some off-ramp and this dude comes walking up with a backpack on and he's not out camping he's you know mm-hmm. living in downtown denver so he comes walking up he's like hey man hey brother he's like hey man you know what you need to go down to 16th street mall man it's way better down there man all right man all right brother and so my brother's just like doesn't really know what to say to this guy and he's like oh he's playing this part as this like really beat up homeless guy and uh so he comes back to me and he's like yeah i'm like what did that guy say to you he's like he said go to 16th street mall i'm like i don't know man. i guess let's go down there <laughs> so we went down there and he stands outside of some place and just stands there and holds this sign and people are just walking up and just like walking by him and just handing him money and um 
felt terrible. This super nice little old lady goes walking by him and comes back. And they're like, you can see her digging in her purse. I'm videoing all of this from a distance. Mm -hmm. She comes back and like gives him some money. And he's just, and he's carrying, he's holding this pizza box that has written on it, like hungry and, you know, whatever, God bless. And it was like misspelled, like God bless was misspelled. And, uh, and, oh my gosh, he couldn't, he he could only do it for like an hour. I want to say he made like, I don't know, 30 something bucks. I can't even remember what it was. We were just all blown away. We're like, dude, you made like 30 something bucks in an hour just standing there. People walking up handing you money. And um, we went home and edited it and put it together with the Jefferson's theme song of moving on up. <laughs> and we like cut all the highlight clips together of all these people coming in handed him money. But, and we made this video that we didn't do anything with. We just like made a funny home video. And uh, by using two VHS players together to edit it to like we didn't have anything fancy to edit so we i can't remember how he did it but we used two vhs recorders to edit the footage and put music to it it was just so crappy edited but it was uh anyway so you bring up panhandling on the 16th street mall and i'm like oh my gosh i've been i've been there it's not, it's not crappy editing either, too, because, I mean, so we had to do school projects. I mean, so part of my graduation requirement was I had to have a portfolio. So I'd have a big drawing portfolio. It had to be uh, 40 pages, you know, whatever your work style was, but it had to be a complete portfolio. Mm-hmm. And then you had to have a three- to five-minute demo reel. So that means you had to come up with a project and show your skills of where you want to try to get a job, right? Yeah. Well, we also had school projects where we had to go do, you know, when we started learning video editing, which was real primitive back then, was the first Premiere, which is now a big thing with Adobe, but it was our first editing suite. Um, uh, we would actually get projects and we had to come up with an idea. So one of the ideas we did was we wanted to go and show the homelessness down on 16th Street Mall and find somebody that, that was interesting enough to go up to me like, you know, can you tell us your story? You know, kind of make it like not like a two life drama, but kind of like just right. No, it's just, just kind of show it. Yeah. So exposing reality. I wish I could find a copy of this. I'd love to send this to you. It was old. I mean, we shot it on on high eight. I oh mean, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. You know, we we were just getting into digital cameras at the school, but we shot it on high eight because we wanted to make it look, you know, mysterious and real. You know, yeah. documentary style. We found this guy, and he was there always. He was kind of I can't remember to describe him. He was. Always had a full beard. Uh, I think we called him uh, 16th Street Jesus because he kind of was just bearded and he always had a big long, it was a jacket, a big wool jacket. Uh-huh. Um, and so we went and we got actually got to know him. His name was Glenn. And he was originally from like upstate New York. And he had a lot of troubles. He had um, drug abuse and that kind of stuff. This guy, I'm not kidding you. We asked him because he panhandled every day. We're like, well, what do you what do you make down here doing this? Is this enough and everything else? Unbeknownst to us, this guy was making forty to fifty thousand dollars a year uh-huh. panhandling. I believe it. Now and this was his this was his gig. This was his stick. So you know the books, like you get your inspirational books every year? Yeah. 365 days of inspiration. So he would hold a sign and I, and the sign would be like, you know, hungry, need help, but we'll we'll bless you with good fortune, a quote of good fortune. He would take the days, memorize fortune, that one for the day, keep it under the sleeve of his arm, memorize it. And everybody he said, he said the same line of whatever that day's mentor is like, you know, be happy and, and go with life or whatever. And people would tip him to say the same line, but he would just go every year into the, like the paper bookstore buy the 360, that year's 365 days of yeah. 
you know, motivation and just repeat it. And, and he actually had an apartment off site, but he would be out there 10, 12 hours a day. And he, that's what he did. Yeah. That's not a guy who doesn't have a job. That guy created a job. I mean, that's his job. And in his own little way, like he created value for somebody. That's what you just said. They tipped him because he created value for them. And even though they got the same regurgitated quote, mm -hmm. they got somebody who gave them some kind words or some something. Mm -hmm. And there was an, there was an exchange there. Like yeah. I got, no, I got nothing. I like that's to me, dude, he probably loved it. Like, yeah. And we showed it. We had this little, um, so we had to present it. I got nothing but respect for that. That was what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. For that, you know, and we had this little theater it was called the bug theater. It was this little old theater that we show our class projects everyone would have it every quarter because we did a quarter system we need to do semesters and so we show that in into it and everything else and um you know his only thing was like well he's like don't you know show the authorities or anybody because like i don't want to get yeah, in trouble yeah, you know we never did but we we showed it and they had like um little awards and stuff when we won like a documentary award which was just a little i think we each got like a gift card for food or something you know but how, how but those videos are good how interesting though are there are is it that there's those kind of stories out there like you didn't you didn't spend a lot of time probably going and looking for these for this guy or whatever you just pick this guy but how interesting is it that this guy has that story and what that turns out to be like like that's they're all around us like those people with those interesting stories and backgrounds and what they're doing like they're all around us yeah i mean i i I think that's the great thing about life though. Everyone's got a story, yeah. a good story to tell. I mean, we, we talked for two hours before we even started this and I've learned a lot about you and you've learned a lot about me. Yeah. We haven't even got the good stuff and I'm just one person in this town. Yeah. I know there's lots of great people in this town, oh, yeah. great stories. Yeah. And like I said, and you know, the power of that editing was fun, but it also, I think the reason I chose it, it was cause it was interesting cause I wanted to make movies and everything else. But it also showed me how you can also, which has become a problem nowadays where you can take a story and you can manipulate it yeah and so one of our projects is we had to do that and it was part of it was like create your own propaganda create our own propaganda story and um i i was um i was just the editor but i didn't i didn't come up with the story so we each were given a position into this we ran it like a real studio so we each had a position so i was uh, uh the assistant animator animator and editor um, and this group and we had actual film students because there was film students in so they took two programs and they combined them to make this project but this was the project so we had to make our own propaganda or you had to just show how you can manipulate things to make them seem what they're not and it, it's funny when I if I remember it back then so the story that these guys did is they went around to uh, around the campus okay and they would ask people a set of questions like it was kind of like a morning routine thing. Like, how do you, what's the first thing you do in the morning? I think was a question, but it was like 10 questions and they would ask them, they asked them for 15 people. Well, what they didn't know is that we cut in before that. And this is really bad just because they wanted to see. This was the assignment. Though, the assignment, right? bad. So, so they were running those questions, but they ran, they ran the backside and this is where it gets bad. I might get in trouble for this, but porn. They were talking what? about porn but they would use these people's answers to talk about porn so they didn't and those people didn't realize that what they're talking and I'm about probably not using that, it's not porn but little people or whatever LPs yeah right but, but that back but that then was, that's that was what it was that's what it was it's called and, but i mean when you took the answers and you would 
actually go to the guy asking the real question because uh-huh. he didn't answer. We had an on guy camera asking it like you you side cut it. Yeah. But it was just showing how you could manipulate something so easy yeah. and so innocent and make it look so bad. And there was a lot of other ones that were just as bad as ours. But it showed us that like, listen, you guys, you have a responsibility and the power. Yeah. Again, you get to like we have problems with now. You get to set the narrative. Oh yeah. You get to do it. I mean, you could manipulate things so much easier today back than it was then. But I mean, Oh, it's crazy. It, it was funny to watch it back because the questions were like, how do you feel about whatever? Well, I like to brush my teeth. You know, it was the answer and you're like going, what? You know, it didn't make any sense, but yeah. that's, that was the project. And it was um, five minutes of uh, just to show you how powerful it can be. And how useful it could be, but how you could really manipulate it to make it something that's not, which... It sounds like, but people have, I mean, people have been doing that for ages and ages and ages, making propaganda, but it's like they have really perfected it uh, now to this modern day. I was going down a rabbit hole yesterday of uh, deep fake videos, Mm -hmm. and it's crazy. I saw one of, uh, it looks like, like, it's like Seinfeld... Um, a mix of Seinfeld and Pulp Fiction. So they take a scene from Pulp Fiction and they mix Jerry Seinfeld into it. It looks exactly like Jerry Seinfeld. And he's sitting in this room while uh, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta are on the other side of the door and doing this big old uh, bit of dialogue. And he's sitting there with a with a with a gun and he's listening to them and he's nervous and it's amazing. I don't know how they do this how they do that type of uh, uh, digital work on that Mm -hmm. but it's Jerry Seinfeld and then they put a laugh track like you're listening to Seinfeld with a laugh track Mm -hmm. but you're watching Pulp Fiction and I thought about it you know like the youth of today um, you know younger impressionable minds who just come across this without ever of knowing or seeing Seinfeld or seeing Pulp Fiction could so easily put these two together and think that this was a real cut of something and it's like it's going to get so hard it's getting hard to discern what is actual real in that video and what is not like that ability to put out propaganda has gotten so i don't know so effective they've gotten so good at it and now it's it's getting hard it's getting hard to tell what's real what's not where we could we could really go down a rabbit hole on this because you know with the involvements uh, and the money spent on artificial intelligence where, yeah i mean elon musk has been doing that um uh, voice ai yeah. program where you can make it sound like i think they've got like 100 people on there and you basically just hit a switch like you could do it right now and you could be talking like, i saw that you know and that's crazy but that's just that's a tip of the you know yeah that's spirit, just we're just man. getting started and so like i said that's, i mean that's photoshop 1999 oh yeah i mean like i said i started i i, I am a, a photoshop <laughs> warrior because i started in three point or three point one and now i'm on whatever we are now 23 it's been involved so much but again those classes taught you a lot um it taught you the real good store parts of storytelling yeah uh, and how you could do it like i said at the time we were you know 20 year old kids we you know thought it was hilarious because we got to cut it up in the end when you saw it you know but again it did show you that like listen you guys can really well you can drive you can drive propaganda any way you want i mean it's it's nothing new in history i mean it's been done forever but you got a real sense of you got to take caution in what you do and and actually if you're going to do something along that line you better know what you're getting into because you can really make some damage too you can and i and what i have learned over the last few years and in, in how i create even my own content now i i just like i kind of have been 
starting to kind of figure out what the essence of all what photography and videography is and that is to make people feel things and that's what the point of that little propaganda little thing is is like you're going to make we're going to make people feel things and you have you do you have to be careful with that it sounds like that's what they were teaching you is like hey you have to be careful about not just this isn't just entertainment you're going to make people feel things and that that is the responsibility when you're I don't know. I think some people know that that's what they're doing. And some people, I don't think know that that's what they're doing with, with content, whether it's video or photographs or something. It's like some people don't have that dialed in, but really that's really the essence of what it, and that's my opinion, right. but the essence of what I feel like what your craft is, is making people feel things. It's how to draw an emotion and what emotion are we trying to, to uh, draw through, through this, even if it's just a basketball banner, you know, there's an emotion that you're drawing from that. That's why people are like, oh, that looks so cool or that whatever. There's an emotion that you're you're creating for somebody through that type of medium. Anyway. Yeah, yeah no, like I said, I mean, as a photographer, uh, where I am now, like I said, I want a reaction. I mean, I, I, mean, I want a positive reaction. I mean, that's what right. I'm always trying to achieve. I mean, I someone may not like my style that's that's completely fine you know i mean that is art art in itself is as long as as long as it pulled some kind of emotion out of them though that's then your mission is complete i mean right i mean yeah i mean that's how i look at it it's kind of like as long as your art is making somebody feel something then you you have art right and you know and i always strive with my photography and and stuff is just to i always try new things and and make make it stand out make it unique to each person i always try to photograph them because everyone's unique no one looks the same i mean even you know identical twins don't look the same right everyone's unique and i want to show that when i take my photography no matter what it is um but also like i said i want reactions my high school banners are different because i want a strong reaction i want the kids to feel like hey we're in this little town but we also have cool you know art that is ours that competes with what they're showing up in the billings i mean when you used to walk into buffalo wild wings you got to see all the you know west high and skyview and all their cool banners and stuff that were being done for them but it was never down in this smaller community mm-hmm. so and I, like i said when i created that which has now become a thing i mean i've got a couple other photographers that try to do what i do and and they've taken my program and they've utilized it which is fine i mean great that i created something that people are like oh man this is really working for him we should try to do that um and like i said that's why when i do my banners and stuff that separates them from anyone else's i really push myself to make mine stand out more like i want my i want my players to look um you know cleaner sharper i want them to be you know i i have standards that i really i do put on myself to make it as best i can because i want to be i mean yeah you can you can make a banner next to mine but i want mine to stand out yeah and does it if it doesn't stand out then i didn't do good enough and I'll put that on myself. I don't put that on anyone else but me. That's not my responsibility, and that's my goal that I set out for myself is to make it good enough that I can make uh, something really, really, first off, cool and something that the kids can be proud of. Yeah. And then, like I said, I, I've since I've been doing that, I've always given back to the school system. And uh, I just did my math before this podcast to kind of figure out where I've been. In, and since 2018 to, 20, to now, I've had just over $18,000 I've given back to the school. Oh, that's awesome. You know, that's incredible. Which is 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 a lot. I mean, I wish I could give more, but I don't want to also take my local community and and try to raise the price enough that you know it, they can't. Yeah. You know, they don't want to do it. Um, you know, like I said, when I have three teams, I always give back to each squad, so it's not like just one squad gets it. So what I take um, the money that I receive in sponsorships, I take and get the cost of printing, 
the the cost of the banners and then I take that much and then I divide it in half because at first I was just giving it all back mm-hmm. but I have to make a living too yeah so of course I take that so I take the rest of it and then I split it th- three ways the back back side but I also use that stuff for you know the money left over for me isn't just for me I use it for marketing I use it to push for the next thing and that requires me keeping up on all my stuff you know of course I have to yeah. keep on my programs my camera gear and that's where evolving. I put it to so everything that I do take I always put back in the banners and some way for it may not come out front but I mean you know cameras and stuff now and they're $5,000 cameras yeah just, just I mean, to get it's, started it's a tick. so for me to do that that's going to take at least three a year probably yeah. or more to raise that money just doing banners so like i said it's an investment but like i said it's been really successful i'm really glad and i will always continue to do that i will always right. get back to school um you know i always try to make at least 500 dollars, if not more um, depending on print rates and whatever it comes out to be for those banners but the banners are bigger now they're four by sixes and how did you get then from Denver and to to back up to hometown Columbus? Oh boy! Um, so this, boy, we're getting in the weeds here. So uh, right after school, I graduated. I um, uh, came back home for a little break because it always seems to me like people that grow up in some little small town are like, I can't wait to get out of this town. You oh, know? I, I I always like that for sure until you got to kind of get out there and, and, until I got a taste of it. Um, I, I've I've come left and come back home so many times but so right after graduation i got my degree in like october of uh, 03 mm-hmm. um and uh so i came out and it just happened uh, i kind of talked to this briefly we'll just uh, blaze by this but um right when i got my degree my degree was in demand high high demand in the states but because of some political stuff done and everything else all my all the companies there shipped everything overseas so we went over to australia china new zealand so there wasn't as many jobs on the west coast i kind of had it in my mind that i would try to find work maybe not in california there's uh, some production companies up in like uh, vancouver washington and that kind of stuff and i had family in washington so i thought well this might be a spot for me because i also have family around because I, I still need my family and uh, somebody i know in the area so i can yeah you know, yeah that. Well, I can never, just, I can never, yeah, just be in some place where I didn't have any kind of connection. I think it would be too tough for me. So um, I started looking, and of course there was nothing going on. So I was back home for like a month, and um, my counselor down there, she goes, "Hey, there's this job in Pinedale, Wyoming. A guy's looking for a video editor and an animator for this new uh, theater stuff that he wants to try. This marketing stuff." I'm like. Well, it's below Jackson Hole. That's a cool area, sure. Yeah, it's so beautiful down there. I jumped on my mom's Miata and drove down for an interview. And uh, it's 70 miles south of Jackson Hole. It's at 7,000 feet. It's really high. Uh, it's a really cool area. Uh, at the time, there was a lot of uh, oil rig workers around there. It, so it was kind of seasonal because they, they had the migration thing, so they could only be there for certain amounts, and then they had to leave for animal migration, so they had to leave the fields untouched so uh, i think it was deer and antelope so uh, it was kind of a small community it wasn't much bigger than columbus actually mm-hmm. probably about the same size um so i got in there and i did my interview and and so what you see now in movie theaters you see all the ads the pre-ads before yeah where, you remember these to be just like a slide just a slide shutter yeah well he was the first one doing i got in ground floor the first one's doing video he wanted to do video in the movie theaters the pre you know before the movie started yeah. so you wanted to go find ads but actually do video computer animation make you know go get your popcorn 
you know, right. to the lobby, you know, yeah, all that all kind those, of stuff. Yeah. So I did that. So um, I got on the ground floor at that, and he had uh, 12 movie theaters, little movie theaters like Ketchum, Idaho, uh, Sun Valley, uh, one in Jackson, um, there's a couple in Utah, a couple in Kansas, but we were just doing ads. So we had a sales guy go out, and he would go get what I was doing, get clients, and then I would go and build animated ads, whether it was just taking their business card at sometimes and just animating the logo and just so it has some movement right or i was creating complete you know as much as i hated doing it hand-drawn animations of you know coca-cola bottles dancing or whatever it was to make a like you know go to the lobby and get popcorn because that's yeah. where movie theaters make their money right and about a i was there for about a year but at the last tail end of my time there because i was 24 okay and um I, there wasn't anybody my age around there. I was the youngest person really in town. There was nobody kind of around my age. So it was pretty lonely. And I'd go back at home quite often. And it just, I was having a hard time staying there. I mean, I love the outdoors. I mean, there was 50 lakes around me. Wow. I mean, the fishing was amazing. I mean, I had some great times, but it just, as you know, a single person, I didn't have much, you know, of any relationships down there. And I yeah. had friends, but they're no one my age. Yeah. And um, right at the tail end of it, um, he got in with Eastman Kodak and Eastman Kodak was a division of Kodak. So there was Kodak paper and there was Kodak film. So they were on the Kodak film side of it and they developed the first technology where they could upload things from a server to broadcast these live previews before the movie started, which you see now. Ah, so that's coming from a central place instead of coming in, you know. Yeah. So, um, and they just heard that we were doing it and they're like, this little tiny company in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, was doing what they really wanted to do. So they reached out to us and said, hey, can we implement this in these theaters? Because they wanted to put the, the, they had a projector that was hooked to a server. And so the great thing about that for anybody that advertised is it kept track of how many times their ad played, ah, exactly what time their ad so plays. So it brought some control to so it. So it gave control, but it also gave all those uh, advertisers a real assurance that, how do I know my ad played? Because when we did it in our theaters, once in a while, the projector would stop, the bulb would burn out, and it wouldn't work, so their ad wouldn't play for a night. That's so, interesting because it gives it gave the advertiser the reassurance that their ad played, but it also, I would imagine, they plugged in the ticket sales of how many people saw that ad. Yep, yep. It uh, gave them all that. It gave them all stats. Stats were key, you know. So it did. It gave them how many people saw the movie that night, um, how long the ads run, exactly what time the ad played. Um, so then they brought me in because the way the the video process worked was a lot different than I had been doing. I'd just been burning it on CDs because we could just put it in and we just put it on autoplay, so it would just yeah just loop. You know, they hit the power on, the projector would come on, and it would autoplay. Yeah, because we didn't have that technology, so it was like, okay, this is great. So um, for uh, three weeks, they sent me to uh, to LA, and I worked in the uh, oh, it's a Chinese Man Theater. Wow. So I were actually, that's where they put their first prototype system was in that. So, and that's really cool. Cause I've been in the inside of the Chinese man theater. I've been up where the projectors are. I've seen the thing cause they still do the thing where they raise the, the, the ropes up or the curtains up for each oh, show. Wow. Um, and the movie station across the hall is where they did all it. And they were teaching me how to do this, uh, projection. And, uh, that's where at the time it was X-Men. I don't know if you remember the old yeah, yeah. X-Men 2. Right. They had the blue car and Wolverine and everything. Yeah. That's where they did all the special effects. Oh, wow. So by law of working not exactly where I wanted to be, I was 
kind of had my foot in the door of where I could maybe get into the special effects company because they had all the big server rooms. They had all these animators in there. And I was like, I was digging it. And I'm like, oh, all right. This I is found great. my people. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go back home right now. I want to go and learn how to do this. Well, long and short, after about three weeks of being in L.A., that kind of told me that I wasn't going to make it. You're like, ah, I'm ready for Montana. No, I mean, because, I mean, you know, Chinese Man Theater is right down in, yeah. I mean, in the central of everything. And, um, you know, and they gave, I didn't end up paying it, but I knew how much I would have had to pay. Like, I was in a studio with two other animators. It was 1,100 square feet. And I think at the time it was $2,400 a month. Oh, my gosh. And we I can't were, imagine what it is now. That's oh, that's oh, high for even, like, that's high now, but... I imagine it's even way more down there. Four or five. And so, and then we lived, we commuted together and we were 15 miles away from the studio. It took us an hour and a half to get to work. It Mm. took us two and a half hours to get home every night. I lived 15 miles. I could have walked faster. I felt I couldn't, but I mean, you know what? You feel that way. Yeah. I could get there faster walking, but the traffic was just so horrible. Um, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I'm like, I added it up and the time just spent getting to and from work the first year, if I would have worked a year there, I would have spent two months of my life sitting in traffic. Yeah. That's not a life. No, it's not. So uh, I got back and, and, and I had a great time and everything else. And then I, I picked up and left and I went back home. So again, I'm returning back home. Um, I came, my, I've been back to my parents' place more than I've ever should have, but I was kind of just young and just wanted to adventure kind of yeah thing. go try things and so i came back here and uh i did some part-time jobs i worked shipping in the silversmiths for a while and my dad goes hey we're gonna go down to reno to the uh, safari club international show we're big hunters and everything else he's like um why don't you come with me like we can we can go find something i'm like well no i you know i don't know if i can i said i've got i got stuff to do He's like, oh, let's come. He's like, we'll, we'll go. He's like, you need to get away. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go see a safari show, go see all these cool mounts and all these cool, you know, hunting clubs yeah. in the country. And I'm like, yeah, this will be great. So we went down and uh, we're walking around and I had no expectations. And um, we get to a, a, a spot and uh, there was a PSE, it's a precision shooting equipment, it's an archery company okay. out of yeah, Tucson. I've so heard I've, of been, it. I've been a PSE shooter since I was a little kid. And actually, um, it just happened that we went by the booth and uh, we were talking to the guy. Well, they were doing a TV show on the Outdoor Channel. And uh, I didn't know that. You know, I've watched hunting shows and I have always told my dad, I'm like, I could do that. I mean, that's, I could do that show. I mean, you know, all these hunting shows. And uh, we end up talking to a rep and he goes, hey, you know, um, our video production department is looking for a new uh, cinematographer and an editor. Would you be interested? And I'm like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, I don't have my resume with me. Let me go home and do it. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll put your name in. Um, Pete Shepley is the creator of PSE. He's the owner and everything else. Well, I get back home and my dad goes, hey, your Bowtech, Rob Seeley, is a rep for PSE. He's like, just have Rob call him. He knows him real well. So I get home. I, I need, turn in my um, resume. Rob called Pete directly. And Pete goes, he's hired. Wow. Just said. He's our guy. And literally from landing to moving down to Tucson was two weeks. Wow. So I, and it was the worst time of year. Good my mom, your dad talked you into that. Yeah. Well, and, and he went with me. It was, it was a blessing. And my, so my mom uh, took some time off and we drove 
through Cheyenne and everything during the snowstorm was like, uh, I think it was in April or something. I mean, the roads were awful. So, I mean, we had a trailer. I mean, I got all my stuff packed up from Wyoming and we moved down there and I get set and I spent two years uh, working on the Outdoor Channel. Awesome. Um, I had, I traveled the world. I, I became really good friends with Pete, the owner. I ended up becoming his number one cameraman. So anytime he took off on a hunt, so what kind of places did you go to then? Um, I spent a month and a half in, or a month in Zimbabwe. Wow. Um, so Pete was an archery hunter and he was trying to complete his big five, which is the big predator. So it's lion, leopard, uh, elephant, hippo, uh, and uh, Cape buffalo. And he hadn't been able to take an elephant with a bow, which is a hard feat to do anyways because um, it's not been allowed forever. In Zimbabwe, it had been shut off because everyone thought uh, elephants were, um, you know, on the verge of endangered. Yeah. It's not true. Um, I've got video um, still today um, when we were in Zimbabwe because we went to Victoria Falls. So I've seen Victoria Falls, so I see one of the natural wonders of the world. Yeah. Um, if I would have had five more minutes, my boss was going to let me bungee jump off the Victoria Falls bridge. Oh, my gosh. But we didn't have enough time. Um, they had the old hotel where they still had the old or the old white suit, and they still did the train ride uh-huh. out to uh, Savannah, and you could have this dinner tour. I mean, it was very, very cool. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I've heard about it, but, I mean, I'm from Montana. I, this is nothing I expected. Um, so he wanted to... Uh, uh, finish his two so he needed a cape buffalo with just a rifle or with a bow because he'd shot ones before but they had to stop him with a rifle and they don't consider that a booked just a archery hunt okay um so and he'd done that with a, an elephant before he shot an elephant but then they they shoot it and then he's like i can't put this in the book as an archery hunt because you sh- shot it you know yeah so you wanted to do the thing well uh, this part of Zimbabwe had shut down hunting for like 15 years just because their government is really bad. I mean, you know, just yeah, yeah, turmoil and a lot of corruption. A lot of corruption. I mean, you know, a, a thing of coke costs you a billion, whatever their money system is. I mean, because they they ran it through the ground. You know. Yeah. Well, we found this uh, through a, one of his guide friends. They were allowing a certain amount of elephants to be taken out again because the population had gotten o- overgrown. And I mean overgrown by the point of uh, tens of thousands. Wow. So in Zimbabwe, it's a small country. Okay. Okay. It's not real big. Okay. So land-wise with a mammal that size, um, they figured that the entire country, I think at the time, and my numbers can be off a little bit, I'm sure. And what what year are you there? You were Uh, there for how long? A couple months? uh, A month and a half. So it was 2007. Okay, okay. Okay, 2007. and um, That's the year I actually moved here. Yeah. So um, we got there. And so the country, they figured sustainably to have a good, healthy population was around like 30,000 elephants in the country. That sounds like a lot. Uh, it does, but I mean, <laughs> it, it it does. But when you hear that the number when I was there, they figured it was closer to fifty to sixty thousand. Wow. And the only reason I can say that with a lot of confidence, and I mean, I've I've had conversations with other photographers that a while after they go to different areas, because not every country's like that, you know, because of their laws and what they, because conservation is a big thing. I mean, hunters pay and support conservation. We're the ones that keep them around, and uh, they just let them get out of control. And so much so that I have, um, I don't know, hundreds of hours of footage that there is not a tree in this area that we drove. Uh, it was a national park. It was 20,000 square miles. There isn't a tree in that area over six feet tall. 
Oh, because I bet you they just decimated them. Elephants come in there and they eat everything after the grasses. So they would just decimate. I mean, I've there wasn't a tree over, a lot of trees over six feet tall because they would eat them. Except the ones that had a lot of thorns. They wouldn't eat certain ones, but everything else was just chopped off forever. And so um, he uh, he did get his elephant. So I've got that on video. Wow. Um, uh, he shot it at 25 yards. Um, he was shooting a new bows at the time. He was the old. We we developed a new bow that could shoot uh, 350 feet a second. Jeez. And back then, the old bows were like 280 feet a second. So we made this new hypercam, which you see all, every new bow you see out there now has the new hypercam. It's their design. They came up with it. Um, they've been kind of, PSE had been kind of been beaten down the world by Matthews and some of the other big brand names. And they finally developed a bow that just kicked their butts and became the new thing and now it's it's everywhere but um yeah so he he used that bow to shoot that elephant and it actually was a perfect shot um it went between the ribs because the ribs on an elephant are like a two by four so if he hits that with an arrow to blow through that is yeah and you're not going to well for what he made the the, the right shot because it went all the way through and it was a quartering away so it went all the way through and the arrow went all the way through the elephant and hit the far leg and you can actually on the video you can see the elephant lift its left leg up because the arrow went all the way through oh my gosh it was an 800 grain arrow so it had this big two blade because you can't use three blade because you don't can't get enough penetration because the difference between a, you know, like a bull you know the the velocity but the energy that travels down the arrow so you couldn't have anything stop it but it went all the way through I mean, he got it in the heart and everything else. Um, and so is it just luck then to miss the ribs? Yep. I mean, a lot of it. A lot of it. Yeah. So that's why it's never, they don't really like, they don't the, call it, they, some of the guides and stuff don't call it ethical. They'd rather just, I mean, the way they honestly shoot elephants, they just shoot them in the head. They, they don't see very well. They have really good eyesight or sense of smell and hearing, but they don't see well. So you can get close to them. We got, there was, we got into a lot of, a lot of elephants. I mean, we were in thousands of them at a time. Is that um, pretty intense? It is. It's scary. I mean, because, you know, we got the guys with the big double barrel rifles and stuff. Cause, to I mean, kind of danger. protect you? Yeah. Because, I mean, it's, I mean, if they smell and they want to run you over, yeah, they're we're 30 yards from them, it's like. And they're fast. Oh, yeah. Incredibly fast. I've got some charges on video where they charged our vehicles and stuff. But he was looking for a, a big elephant for big ivory, right? So the lore is, you know, there's not hundred pound elephants. So that's the ones you see that are really long and tall back in the, you know, back in the early 1900s, there's not many of those elephants left because they've been poached. Mm. You know, there's a couple in like South Africa has got a, um, in their big park. I can't remember the name of it now. I'm going to kick myself, but they've got some hundred pound elephants, but those elephants have a pack of, uh, uh guards are on them all the time, every day. There's 15 of them, so they don't get poached. Ah. It's the only way they can do it. So a big elephant considered in the books or for scoring-wise is like, you know, a 40-pound elephant is a, a big elephant. So what do you mean by 40-pound versus so they weigh pound? Them. So they weigh, the, they weigh the ivory. So oh, the, I see. The, how okay. thick the ivory is and how tall it is, it's by weight. Okay. Uh, so, um, you, know, you know, like if 30 to 40-pound was going to be a big one, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's what he was looking for because he'd taken others, but, again, they he wanted it in the books, and if he was going to do it, he wanted it to do it right. right. So um, we ended up getting that uh, elephant, so we, we shot it, okay. It took us five days to get it, and it all became because of the government. So the elephant was on this ranch. You can well, it went into a national preserve, like across the line of national uh. preserve, and we had to wait for them to give us approval. Well, it's not like you can make a phone call and do it. It's got to go through, like, literally, like, telegrams. And it took forever to get it. 
Um, but I mean, it really from where he shot it to where it actually did, you know, die and stuff was probably like it's still two and a half miles. Hmm. I mean, elephant arc doesn't pump that much, and for it to you know feel the effects of an arrow, it it took a long time. But I mean, wow! But it just took longer for us to get approval. And I, I still remember it because uh, by the time, you know, we're in. Are you guys camping out there? No, we were we were in a lodge on top of a hillside. And so we were in uh, concrete, like round okay. huts with, you know, the grass and yeah everything else. But there was only chicken wire over the windows. And we had a pack of um, lions that lived down below the hill. And um, they, they're not scared of people. I had a lion uh, charge, charge us and stop 20 yards from us. She had no fear because they don't see humans. Yeah. This preserve, they don't, they don't really see, they don't have interactions. Um, it was H- real How'd wild. you sleep at night with, uh, oh, f- like, you, knowing that you had a little bit of chicken wire between you and that? Uh, not very well. Um, <laughs> you, you, you ever, uh, you, you know, I've heard of, I don't know if you ever heard a wolf howl at night, if anywhere out in the wild. I have not. But uh, you've heard the videos. Uh, yeah. Like zoo where they, they roar and they go, roar, roar. Yeah. Yeah. Have them down there where you can feel it in percussion and they're still a mile down below the hill. And you're knowing the only thing stopping to you is a window that's, you know, two by three with chicken wire over it oh my god i had an escape plan if i ever heard footsteps out in my little hut there was like a table and they had the big beam rafters up above because i as a cameraman i'm not allowed to have a weapon so if i heard something my thing was to go up here up here and get to the very top of this hut and just sit there and and yell for my boss because he's you know, he he was hunting him, so he had his yeah. rifle but i i had nothing i had a pocket knife i mean crazy stuff but i mean yeah that's scary Ah, oh, I'd have been whittling a spear. Oh man, you know that that was a great. <laughs> it was a great adventure, though. I mean, I got to see a natural wonder, and the other one that was really scary was hunting the Cape buffalo because they're they're really really dangerous. But um, he ended up getting that too. But uh, got it all on film. Um, came back home, and, and literally, I was um, as a cam- traveling cameraman. Um, the reason I left PSE was that it just it was a drain because I love hunting too, but because I was filming it all the time, I never got to hunt. I mean, I spent. I don't know many times in the Midwest and uh, Illinois. Um, I was in the Mossy Oak camp, so like anybody in the Mossy Oak crew that you see on TV, I've been in camp with those guys. Wow, they're great. You know, yeah. a lot of great stuff. I was in Rascal Flats. Was in one of the camps I was in. I've met Ted Nugent. Oh wow! You know, um, just because my boss is knowing these people for years. For you, yeah, you're on the job. Like, yeah, you know, so. and it got to be kind of cool. But I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, there's some big names in the hunting industry that I, I was around that are still on TV. You know, Lee and, Lee and Tiffany here's a big name. And I've been in camp with them and, and great people. I mean, I had a lot of great fun, a lot of laughs. Um, guys that you like, you said you would never realize that we're, we're rich. Yeah. And like I was telling you before, uh, kind of briefly about Mossy Oak. Like yeah. You would never realize that the, uh, is it Toxie? Yeah, it's Toxie. Hayes, he's one of the co-owners of, I think, yeah, of Mossy Oak. Uh, he was the marketing director for Microsoft when it first launched. So when you go into Denver or in Golden, Colorado, you know, there's that house, there's a peak on a big hill up there. I don't know if you might have recognized from Boulder area. Uh-huh. There's a house on top of a hill up there. It's, the only, it's like the biggest hill above Boulder where CU is. That's his house. Wow. He has seven full-time employees just answering his emails. I think back then, and I don't know if it's still still that way but i believe those guys were getting paid in stocks back then oh yeah you know they like those early early guys or you know before the company was just massive massive i mean they were giving them stocks that back at that time weren't 
weren't worth that much. Yeah, and I mean, he, I mean, he, you would never recognize him because, like I said, he looks like a Duck Dynasty guy, big uh-huh. beard, wearing mossy oak camo. You would never think he's a marketing genius. Wow. So he, uh, he left them, and he, he actually is the one that really helped them push their brand because what did mossy oak and these camo companies do? They, they branded their, or trademarked their pattern. That's that's what camel companies do to get their money so he helped them with that and pushed their marketing that's how they got the work because the guys that he worked with they were just hillbillies you know they're southern boys they're just you know doing their thing and he helped them get big you know helped them grow and then at that time talking about that video editing where i was at where they were streamlining it because youtube was a kind of a thing because i did a lot of viral youtube guerrilla marketing for our products on youtube because it was becoming popular yeah so we would do behind the scene videos where we would test other people's products and show ours and how it blow through like uh, ballistic gelatin and all that kind of stuff just to, oh, yeah. just to hype it up you know and uh so he was actually working in which um is now with the outdoor channel um but they were making their own server he's building a server so they could have a whole hunting shows on their own server that you could just watch on like a a pay for like youtube channel okay so it was kind of that first sequence of having a uh, an actual you know server area that was just mainlining all these tv shows that they would custom do so they could get away from having to do with like the outdoor channel and that kind of stuff i see so he wanted that network i don't think he wanted to get so much away from the outdoor channel but he wanted to be able to monopolize all their shows and make more content yeah to have on these networks and servers where people would pay like well, now we have apps but back then it was like a web web address i don't know if it was mossy right TV. almost like a subscription yeah get subscription like see all that yeah, content twenty dollars a month because i mean if they showed just whitetail hunting which is the number one animal filmed and shot around in the u.s just that money right there is billions yeah wow billions of dollars so i mean so i got to kind of see some of that ground floor but i mean um, a lot of great people in that industry that's fascinating just had fun but like i said i got burnt out yeah just um you know i had i had some uh kind of family down in that area and my parents love coming down in the Christmas time, you know, because, I mean, it's 70 degrees. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was kind of fun. Um, the hot days, I was kind of glad I was traveling on a lot of the hot days because there was a couple months there where it never got below 100 for like two months and got acclimated. You know, I, just, well, I, I my air conditioner ran nonstop, but, oh, you know, but I'm good familiar times. with that. I'm familiar with that. That's I grew up in uh, the Las Vegas, Nevada area, and I don't know, man. That's why I... I found myself heading up this way it was just because of that the heat was killing me so yeah and like i said that's kind of also kind of how photography started getting in kind of my first real professional take on it even though i wasn't a paid photographer i was a videographer and and, and editor and a producer and uh but when we do take our new product out with masio because they were a sponsored company we would do do shoots we do photo shoots and since i was the only one with the camera I started shooting stills. And so I had a lot of my stuff end up in ads. So my first magazine publishes were all in Mossy Oak ads with PSE kind of combined um, that we get to our departments and the stuff. So we'd create content and take pictures and, and do the whole, whole kind of, uh, kind of thing. So that kind of was really my first start, I would say in photography. So that was around 08. And that's why I always say I kind of got established in 08 because it was right at the tail end that I was really starting to get into photography. See, I didn't realize that you had all this background and all this. And I've gone to your website and I've looked at that and I, I see that you have some examples there of product photography. Mm-hmm. And I was I was amazed. I was like, oh, wow, this stuff looks super sharp. This looks like really professional. I just figured you were just kind of homegrown photographer who dabbled in it and has been just, you know, putting this thing. Because I didn't have any 
I didn't have any of that information about your background on that, but I looked at it and I was like, that looks super professional. And now I get why, because... Yeah, I had a background in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, like I said, um, that was... I've always been in marketing in some form. I've always worked for marketing companies. I mean, I think that's just natural. If you be, do video or any kind of photo stuff, marketing is going to have to be part of your skill set. So I've got yeah. that and I'm, geez, now I'm aging myself, but I've almost done it for 25 years. So, wow. um, so that was a great start though. I mean, I, like I said, I, you know, we got to work with Nikon. I got to work with a lot of popular brands, uh, Swarovski, um, taking pictures and stuff, not officially for them a lot of times, but I was taking pictures of the products that we use for advertising. So, um, in a kind of back way, I got to kind of do that stuff, browning materials, a lot of outdoor stuff. Cause that's where I was. Um, and then I, uh, down there because I was around a lot of fight stuff, I got to work with, um, a couple different, um, uh, airline companies. Um, and uh, do different videos. There was one where uh, I can't think of the name of it now. I just kind of skipped my head. I forgot. But anyways, it's on my website. But um, I created a, a 3D animated video for them. Uh, so it was a plane because they wanted what they wanted to do was help firefighters. And so they wanted to convert 747s to drop, be water droppers. Okay. Because it's not what they use now. You know, they don't use that big of a, a plane. You know, because they're always afraid that a plane that size flying that low and that slow dropping water would be just you know disasters could happen and so i kind of sense kind of helped them <laughs> yeah show a kind of 3d illustrations of of doing that and then there was another guy that was in that same thing and he wanted to use um airships you know the old like we call them blimps oh, okay okay the airships yeah the yeah. old blimps were just fire hazards back in the war right because they right. were filled with helium right i mean it doesn't take much to light one of those up and it's it's gone it's gone seconds right? well they don't use that technology anymore but i mean they still had airships when they're doing football games right you know yeah. the blimp shots yeah well he had thought of an idea because the blimps can actually carry a lot of weight that he can make four or five ballast tanks that you could drop into a lake for a fire and then as one was filling up, because they would have slots and they had floats, you could go down with the airship because they don't move super fast. You could go down low. You could hook them up, bring them into the plane at the airship, and then the airship could float over to the thing. But the great thing about that is, like, planes have to just drop and, and run. Yeah. Where he had de developed an idea of using different size, like, almost like slides that had an articulating arm that were 100 feet long. And so you could use it just like a fire hose. So you could literally uh -huh. fly over to an area... And sweep back and forth and empty and a whole tank. Be a little bit more direct with it. Direct, direct it. And the other thing that he, he was using it, the idea for was that, you know, a lot of times when you have your, your hot shots, mm -hmm. guys jumping out of planes and landing, well, you wouldn't need to do that with this airship because they could maneuver in even in, I think he added up to like 50 mile an hour winds that you could go in and keep those things steady. And you could, I mean, it's just, it's a balloon. Yeah. Basically just land and drop all your firefighters up and get them up and get them out. Wow. You know? And so it was a good idea. So I kind of did, I did a lot of the animation for that kind of stuff. Um, and that was just kind of another thing where I was taking pictures for him, trying to help him get grants and get this through government approval. I never did get that far, I don't think. I've never seen anything past that. But um, I have seen some 747s that they've converted to be water droppers. Wow. So, I mean, that was kind of cool. I mean, taking that video where they took a runway and they went and water bombed it with that thing. Oh, my gosh. So much water. Really? Oh, it's a ton. I mean, they just did like a runway out here. Yeah. A one mile, whatever that is, one mile strip or whatever, and just hit it from end to end, and it was just soaked. Wow. I mean, thousands I, of gallons of water. I don't know. A few years back, I, I can't remember actually if it was 2000. I don't know. There was a big fire right out by our, our place out there. It wasn't the, the the Derby fire of 
06, but it was in like 2013 or 14. I think we, we had a big fire out there where I live out at Countryman Creek and I got video of this, this guy coming in super low and coming right through our valley. And that plane seemed massive, but now that you're, it wasn't no 747, he came in and dropped retardant, I think. Aren't those like a C-130? I don't know. I, I don't know what plane type they are. I'm, I'm totally wrong on that. I don't remember. But, yeah, they're not as quite as big as... Actually, do you remember probably a few years ago, um, uh, right up by the rest area here on the way towards uh, Billings, they had that fire that was on the hillside there yes. up in, in Pinecrest? Yep. They hit one of those with, with a bigger pl- jet. I think I don't know if it was a 7 but it wasn't a regular plane, I don't believe. I think, um, I think there was footage of it somewhere. But, yeah, it was a big... It was a big jet that they had converted wow. to drop all that retardant, you know, just to get that stuff out because they hit it right. At, I mean, it, for a while there, you could see the remnants on the interstate there. It was because they hit that whole hillside right there before the rest area to keep it from moving up into those those people's homes. Ah, crazy. Okay. Yeah, it that was a lot crazy. of fun, though. I got to go and see all these planes and sit in them and get told how they do and then try to go and in, then try to put a visual, yeah. visual re- representation of within the guide or tolerances mm-hmm. that they're giving you. Yep, and then yeah. like I said, on the side I was doing that. That wasn't in with the company. I just did it on the side when I had some free time during the slower months and when we weren't editing for the TV show. Yeah, because um, we had to do uh, twenty-four episodes a year and everything else, so we had to create content. So that mean I was gone. So the reason I left, I told you, I got burnt out. That I figured out that um, my first year I was gone, one hundred and sixty-one days filming. Oh man! So over over half a year. So, yeah. Being away, I mean, it was fine because I was single and I could go anywhere. But, I mean, just it just takes a drag. Because, I mean, when you're in hunting camps, I mean, you're in a tree stand at 4 in the morning. Yeah, it's not like going eight. and clocking in at this such and such time. You're out there at the worst times because yep. like, you're trying to catch them in the morning or in the evening or the whatever the conditions may be. And it's always, what, ch- constantly changing weather conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got to keep things clean. you got to keep things charged. Oh, man. And as a cameraman, I mean, like I said, yeah, some other place I've been. I've, I've been to the Northwest Territories up in Canada. Okay. I've been to the Arctic Circle. We went wow. there for a sheep hunt. I have a midnight sunset photo at my oh, house. Oh, man. Um, a picture of me where I was hunting there in, I think it was July. Yeah, it was July. And the sun never set. That's incredible. Because we were up high enough, you know? Yeah. And so we had to sleep in tents, but I was so tired. But um, I remember, I mean, as a cameraman, my camera gear, just without any of my clothing or extra, you know, backpacking gear, just to keep, because you're hiking up and down the mountains looking for sheep, um, my camera gear weighed 40 pounds. Ugh. My backpack on average was 75. Jeez. So I remember that hunt that, um, I mean, we were hunting all at all hours because it, it was light. There yeah. was no, there's, they don't have hunting times. It's just dark, you know, you can't hunt at dark. Well, there's no dark. Yeah. So we were hunting all hours, but I remember it was a 10 day hunt. Uh, the only thing that saved me is that my boss uh, was a helicopter pilot. And so we got helicopter pilot and dropped off at our f- first location. We didn't have to hike from the river up to that, which I was really glad because it was a five-mile hike and I would have had to hike with a... Oh, that's... Yeah. I mean, I was in pretty good shape then, but I remember that hunt. Still, those are, that's ridiculous weight. Oh, yeah. I remember that hunt and that 10 days, I lost 21 pounds. Jeez. Just because we, we were burning... Well, we'd hunt for 12, 14 hours looking yeah. for the right sheep walking up and it was tundra moss so tundra moss works like a trampoline so every time you take a step it sinks 
and does this and then sometimes it sinks and you hit a rock down below it so i mean blistered feet and all that kind of stuff were just kind of the perils of it so you're just burning a ton of calories ton of and calories. what snacking all through the day so uh, living off cliff bars yeah i can't eat a cliff bar to this day uh it just gags me uh and then uh and at the end of the night we'd have like mountain houses like a oh, yeah. two thousand calorie mountain house so i'd yeah. probably i'd have probably maybe 2500 calories that day but i probably burned six seven thousand calories climbing up and down the hills oh i bet so that's why i lost so much weight yeah you know i mean when i got back home you know of course i hadn't shaved for 10 days and talk about the first hot shower you have in 10 days i was taking glacier showers up had there. to be glorious oh so I'm a hot shower guy man i can spend some time in a hot shower so you know they have these remote cabins because i mean you're at the middle of nowhere and uh they took a big uh 200 gallon metal drum put it up on a hill and put a fire under it and heated the water and then they just had tubing systems that ran down to a shower and then they had cold water feed in from the other side so you just have to turn the dials because gravity fed okay and you'd have to figure out so Get if you turn mix. it on too hot without any cold water it scalded you because it they couldn't temperature they just built a bonfire under it yeah warmed it up but i tell you what that first shower after 10 days i've just taken you know bath showers with the washcloth standing in Ugh. in glacier water that was really cool though when you started to think of where you were yeah, of course like, maybe you know, a few thousand people don't have seen this location ever yeah. ever no one had touched that water been on that glacier ever you know? i know it was it was, it really was cool. ice for a thousand years like 15 minutes ago and now yeah. it's water i mean yeah. ice cold but i mean you wake up when you take those those uh quick showers in your just in your underwear and just oh, man. with a washcloth and trying to get clean enough so you can last 10 days and then go get that first hot shower man nothing better nothing better it seems like things taste better though while you're out there too though i mean oh yeah or you're drinking like i mean you guys have coffee and everything else like to me coffee tastes better when you're out in the woods and you're camping like i don't know why but certain things like that hot food just taste better out there uh you know i think that it comes down to need like when it's so easy when you turn on a faucet and you can have water purified water you can have coffee and when it's not something that you can just snap your fingers and have I think it always tastes better yeah i mean like i said the water up there people are like when did you have to filter it and i'm like no this water hasn't been touched in yeah million years probably i don't know yeah you know it's coming out clean it's cold it's crisp it tasted delicious oh, um man. you know uh we got one reprieve like about day six um we, we'd eaten through our mountain houses and they had a local camp chef and the hell helicopters up there were actually dropping off people looking for diamond spec mines from okay. canada yeah and so they were always flying over so when they'd have one land there um they would ask him like hey can you do a drop over at this base camp where our hunters are for us because you're flying that direction anyways well we got lucky that one day they did it was day six and she'd made a fresh loaf of bread oh. and she'd made homemade uh, raspberry jelly but it didn't have a lot of sugar it was just fresh yeah. raspberry i mean it was all jellied but it didn't have the was the stuff the pectin or whatever yeah. to make it real jelly right and uh, she just took peanuts from a can of peanuts and made like her own peanut butter and they dropped it off the helicopter from like 50 feet they just flew over and dropped a bag <laughs> that was the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich i've ever oh, had. oh i bet it sounds good right now oh i mean it was delicious i mean because i mean i've been living off cliff bars i know and i've eaten the same turkey chili or stroganoff I've from mountain yeah. house and i mean now the ones that today are so much better it tastes way better. I They're mean, getting better at it. 
The Cliff Bar oh. thing too, though, they're just, I don't know. I, and I know they're better than some other bars and things. They're just dense. There's just something, I don't know if it's an aftertaste. I don't know. I'm not trying to bag on Cliff Bars, but I've eaten quite a few of them myself, but it's just not something though that I can just like, oh man, I sure am jonesing for one of these. Uh-huh. It's like, it, it fills a need, but it's not something that I'm jonesing for ever. Yeah. My, my, uh, 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 stepson's a rock climber and he's in the cliff bars and we bought a bag of it. And I, I'm sure they're better because they've, they've had to improve their taste from yeah. back then. But back then they were just, I just, I mean, I think it comes down to when you're eating them to just try to fill some kind of nutrition in you yeah and you're eating two or three of them they just and they all just taste like blah i mean they have no they don't have the rich taste you're looking for or your brain seeking i guess yeah yeah and i just couldn't do them anymore so i mean like i said i i to this day I, if you couldn't hand me a clip bar i couldn't get it down shoot i had a whole case of a minute back there i was gonna have one sitting on your table for you <laughs> glad i didn't bring those yeah, out no no but like i said uh, it was a great adventure and and uh you know i just kind of that part of my life was a lot of fun just because I got to go to places like that. I mean, I was in all over, uh, I was in Quebec, I was in all over the States, anywhere you, you can imagine for, for hunting videos. Um, uh, but I just get, get to travel and punch my ticket. So I've been to Africa. Uh, my dad took me when I, after I graduated high school for a hunting trip. So I've been to Africa twice, you know, oh, that's, that's awesome. I've been to Australia. Um, so I've been around, around the world. I mean, uh, this year, um, my family's taken, I'm finally going to get to Europe. So my family's taking a trip to Greece. So oh, nice. I've almost got all the continents, almost, wow. except the frozen ones. I don't know if I would ever want to go to those, but I, did you spend a bunch of time in Australia or was it a quick trip? Uh, I actually, uh, and did you get into the outback or were you in town? Uh, I was actually in both. So actually this is uh interesting. So this happened right after nine 11 is when I went in 2001. So my dad's, um, uh, high school uh, classmate that I was kind of working for part-time when I was in going to school. I was basically just a nanny. He had three kids and I was working jobs and I was struggling trying to keep up with my artwork and video work. And so he just said, Hey, work, work a, one day, just run my kids around to tennis camps and whatever. And he's like, well, I'll pay your rent or whatever. And I'm like, perfect. It was a great gig. Plus I got to go to hockey games and he would, he just spoiled me. He's like my other dad, love him to death. But he was also the head psychiatrist for, um, United airlines. So he had a practice up in Aurora, and so he would help pilots that would, you know, get into some kind of trouble, whether it was they didn't pass a drug screening or they had, um, you know, divorces or whatever. So he would counsel them and help them try to maintain their flight license because they had really high standards, and they still do. And um, so after 9-11 happened, I mean, I remember where I was. I was in class. I had a 7 a.m. class. I walked into class. And my teacher comes wheeling as fast as he could with his TV and plugs it in. And I we flipped it on, and it was the exact same moment the second plane hit the tower. And, of course, we're in Denver, so we have trade, the trade centers just downtown. It's only five blocks from us. So the school announcement comes on. It's like, everyone go home. You know, stay away from downtown streets. We don't know if there's an attack. You know, I mean, it was just commotion, right? So we went through all that. Well... His family had planned to go to uh, Australia because they're big tennis fans. They were going to see the Australian Open. And he goes, I can't go for the full time. He goes, do you want to go and be a chaperone and help my wife out? So I get to go for a free trip in Australia, and all I have to do is watch the kids and haul luggage around. And heck, yeah. So that's how I got to go. That's awesome. So I got blessed with that. So we did. Um, Yeah, so we went. um, Gosh, man. I would love to go back. Um, uh, Sydney was cool. So we landed in Sydney first. We stayed there. 
I got to go in the opera house, go around the British gardens around there, a bit on the big Harbor bridge. I actually went fishing out there. We did a fishing day out there. So we spent a few days in the city there and just walked around. Absolutely gorgeous. Wow. Gorgeous, gorgeous. That the garden around the 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 you know the famous opera house is just mind blowing. That British garden is huge, and then, and then the opera house is amazing too. Yeah. If we wouldn't have had the kids, um, his wife Jennifer and I would are gonna, we're going to go in and watch a. They had shows going on. Yeah. And I wanted. I don't like opera, but I I'm going to see an opera in an opera house. I oh mean, yeah, it's, of course. It's legendary. I mean, it's an icon for the the country. You know? Yeah, just the experience. Oh yeah. So then we went from there, and then we um, uh, went all the way north to Perth to northern and we did um the great barrier reef i've got video of me acting like a dork underwater scuba diving around the great barrier reef wow um there's a video of me touching a clam probably the size of this table Jeez. and and because the guy would tell you what you could touch uh-huh and they they don't close real fast because they're so big but they right. close but we felt the inside of the i guess they call it the meat of the the clam yeah feels like velvet underwater wow. you want to talk about a tense a sensation underwater that you're not expecting it was cool. Yeah. Um, the other one that was cool is like the sea anemone, you know, uh-huh. like the clownfish and stuff. Yeah. You touch it. It's It feels sticky when you're underwater because you're getting stung, but because your stingers aren't big enough, you're not getting getting hurt, but it feels sticky underwater. Wow. Uh, some of the coolest I've things. I've seen plenty of them. I've just never touched them. Yeah. And it was it was cool because they let us kind of touch this little part there, but um, the, the most vibrant colors I've ever seen in the ocean. I mean, coral with the brightest, you know, um, and, I don't blues and purples and yeah just the you know there were sharks around there had little reef sharks and stuff but it was just so cool because i mean it's another natural wonder world and in my head when i was swimming there i'm like okay so i've seen victoria falls and i've seen the great barrier reef and like this one of the wonders of the world i've seen two of these things already man you're on a roll i'm, I'm from montana man this is this is amazing so i got video of that that was a lot of fun and then um we ended up being back in melbourne for the the tennis open so i got to see like and I'm not a tennis fan. I mean, I've played tennis. I mean, they're they were real. They're still a real big tennis family. But yeah, so I saw uh, my two... firstborn son is Andre, named after Andre Agassi. There you go. And uh, my youngest is Connor, Connor Daniels, yeah. uh, named after uh, uh, Jimmy Connors. Yeah. So we were there in 2002. So it was a 2002 Australian Open. I got to be wow. got tickets. Got to go see. Um, they saw more matches than I did. I saw like. Um, I think four or five matches. I uh, can't remember even who did Rafael. I think what was his name? Nadal. Nadal, and then uh, I can't. I was rooting for the German guy. I think it was Tommy. Something with an H. Anyways, I was rooting for him because this guy was just German. I did. I didn't know any. I mean, I don't. I wasn't big intense, but I was like, again, I'm like, if I'm here and I'm getting into this stuff, I'm gonna go see this. Yeah. But at that same time, was it when the first Lord of the Rings launched? Oh. That's when it first came out. Yeah. Right when we went there in January. It's right when, because it opened at Christmas. Yeah. And I already saw it at home and I was sitting there and I'm like, there was like, I had like two days where there wasn't a lot of going on and they were doing things. And the city, Melbourne's a big, big city. I mean, when you fly in, obviously is towns and homes. Same thing was, because it's so flat. You just see buildings for as far as you can see, even in the plane, you know, 10,000 feet above. You just, so I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm like, oh man, there's a, cool movie theater down here i'm gonna go see the lord of the rings so i went and saw it in this old theater well i didn't know this old theater i saw it was like the oldest theater in melbourne so it was all really old and had old pillars and they did the drapes up and everything else I'm like, it's like a chinese man theater you know yeah this is pretty cool not that i knew that's where i was going to be later in life because this is before then so i got in there and 
I watched the movie and I had a great time by myself. I don't think there was like 10 people in there, you know, cause it was like middle afternoon on like a Tuesday and everyone else was working the city. Yeah. And then I just pretty much spent that time and the rest of the time just walking around and, and looking at architecture and talking to people and trying things. That I, I'm okay trying new things like food and stuff. So I'd go on an adventure and try food. Brits don't make really great food. That's all I'm They're say. not known for it. No, no, no. I, I, that's how I don't understand how uh, Gordon Ramsay got so famous. To be honest with you, because uh, they just I, it, it looks good, but it just doesn't have flavor. Uh, okay, so I, in Australia, one of their things was is they would make uh, potato salad, so it was really heavy on the mayo. So it was just a really it was basically just a mayo, really heavy mayo based potato salad. Okay, and they would do the same thing with corn salad. They would just put mayo in it and onions and some seasoning, and they had it as another side salad for like a lot of their dishes when we were down there. It was weird. I mean, it just it was like. I was expecting to have like some, you know, taste, you know, like yeah. something different. And, uh, so eventually on uh, one of my Tuesdays, I was like, okay, uh, it was like after that first week, cause we were eating kind of same bland food. It just doesn't have a lot of spice or flavor. I mean, you could go, I, if you want to make a business in Sydney, if anyone hears this from Sydney, uh, learn how to make an Alfredo sauce and go nuts because you'd the, make a killing down there. Oh my God. The, we went to an Italian restaurant and they had red sauces, but they had no cream sauces whatsoever. I'm like, are you serious? I wonder if it just doesn't take off down there. I wonder if I, they've tried I, it and the people just don't, don't, I don't react maybe, to maybe it. Maybe that is. It's all red sauces and like, you know, like butter and wine sauces. And yeah. I'm like, man, make, bring an Alfredo down here and make a fortune. But um, so when I, they, uh, I went to Iceland and I was talking to a lady and, and uh, she's like, well, what do you do? And I was like, I, you know what? I have a breakfast burrito tra uh, food trailer. And she's like, well, what's a breakfast burrito? I'm like, I was explaining it to her. She's like, that doesn't sound good. And I was like, like, they just don't do that there. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just not on their radar. No. You know, I was like, oh, actually, really? Uh, breakfast burritos are a big thing in the U.S. And we kind of have our own play on it. She was like, okay, sounds good. Doesn't sound good. I probably wouldn't even try it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, you just think, like, certain things are just standard, you know, oh, yeah. and uh, across the board. But certain cultures, I don't know, they just... That's just not on their radar. No, no, it's just how we live because we have a, a good friend of ours that lives up in um, in uh, Switzerland, and he comes he comes to the state all the time, and he's toured around. He'll fly into Calgary and he'll rent a car, and then he just drives around, and he's been all over. But he's been, you know, when he comes and eats with us and that kind of stuff, you know, their portions are small. I mean, they don't. I mean, for him and his family, they got you know like mini fridges because they have fresh markets every day. You know, they go out and buy their stuff fresh for their meals every night. They don't store it. They don't, leftovers aren't a thing, you know. For, so they're not setting any records no. for societal obesity over there? Uh, well, that and they walk everywhere. <laughs> and everywhere up there, you know, it's, it's closer though. They don't have the expanses like you do. And that's what he'll tell you if you were here. He'd be like, he's like, you guys have space. He's like, everything we have, he's like, is in walking distance. Yeah. So we walk and he's like, and you know, Petro by the leader, it's like, it was that then it was like three dollars a liter yeah so what's that i don't know what almost seven six seven dollars a gallon that's what we paid in iceland was like seven eight dollars a gallon yeah and so he's like they have a car but they don't use it unless they're going like to go visit family across the country other times they're biking or they're walking and so he's like you know we or they grab a train or they grab yeah, yeah. but yeah. yeah but it's set up different because we we just I mean, I think, I mean, this person, but I think it'd be cool if we had some of those bullet trains and stuff around here. Oh, I we do could too. Go from here. If, I, if I could get in bullet train and go see my avalanche play in like six hours, just being on a train and get down there, 
I'd be I'd probably be a ticket holder. You know, it'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. Because you, know, you could go see them. If you could just buy like a, a pass and just go. But I see that there's a lot of conflict on that. I mean, I, they've tried doing that over the years, but I mean, we just don't. We just have more space. There's space yeah. there. They don't. Everything is built up, and where you can't build is because it's mountains, or it's you know. Yeah. So it only makes sense though to have one of those types of trains. That like, how much traffic could you get off that interstate over there, running up and down the uh, between like Billings and then going on down to Denver and then from Denver on down. Like there should be with every north south interstate, there should be a rail with a passenger train system running. I mean, how how cool would it be like my wife uh, works for FIB, so you know she works here, but she works a few days in Billings at the main tower. Well, yeah. how cool would it be like when the roads were this bad and she had to go like 40 miles an hour with her Jeep because it's so bad we jump on a train that doesn't get stopped by anything. Yeah. Really, unless it's 20 feet of snow and be from here to Billings in 15 minutes, 20 yeah. minutes, and then get off a of main hub in downtown and be able to, you know, either create economy for, you know, Uber drivers or whatever to take you to her things yeah. or taxis. But I mean, it would, I think it would create some stuff, but I mean, there's, there's controversy. I, I don't but know. Like I said, it'd be, I think it always been cool. I mean, yeah, I'd love to be able, I mean, you know, they still have the High Line. I still think they still run that train where they do. To, to Seattle and out there. They that do. Direction. In fact, it's funny you bring that up because I, like two weeks ago, I was on, on their website looking at, okay, I was going to just drive out to, uh, my daughter lives out in uh, Vancouver, Washington. And we were thinking about going out there to go visit her and her husband. And I thought about it. I was like, hey, why don't we just, why don't we just drove up? and grab the train and have her and because you can do that it is make it makes it a longer trip but it i don't know we were looking at that just the other day we still might do that but uh, i used to be a track inspector for bnsf up on that rail there's actually double main track or two main lines up there and they do they up on the high line there's two amtraks a day one in the morning one in the afternoon uh that come ripping through there at 79 miles an hour i know that because i when i was super new at it all of a sudden i was like it was the holiday weekend and everybody's gone and i'm filling in and uh i called a buddy of mine and i'm like hey man can you believe like he also hired on with bnsf about the same time as i did we were brand new track inspectors and we're up there and i'm like dude can you believe like we're in charge of you know finding defects in the rail this weekend and putting slow orders or you know whatever like there's like passenger trains up here ripping along at almost 80 miles an hour and like they left us to, like I was from Haver heading uh, west for like 50, 60 miles, and he was from Haver heading, heading east. We were two new guys watching the rail up there, and I don't know. It was super stressful, but I couldn't believe that I just – I did not have like – I didn't feel like I had a massive amount of uh, training on that. Mm -hmm. And then it's your job is to, uh, you know, make sure you identify the defects and put the proper amount of slow orders on, you know, measure things and go by all these measurements and tolerances. And based on these measurements and tolerances, how how fast should a uh, passenger train go across it? How fast should, should a uh, freight uh, bearing train go mm -hmm. across it? And then call into dispatch in Fort Worth, Texas and put the appropriate slow order on there. Anyway, yeah. so they yep. do. They run double main and they run fast up there. And... Um, I have been wanting to do that trip for years since I was up there doing that track inspecting. I would see those guys come through there, and then I know they go all through, you know, they continue right across northern Montana, and it's just beautiful scenery. And to be able to just hang out on a train car and, uh, you know, sipping some coffee or head down to the... Are you are you a baseball fan? 
I I just don't really follow really any yeah. big major sports anymore. I grew up as a baseball fan. And I, so we have a good friend that uh, was also a dentist out of Forsyth, and uh, before his dad passed away, they used to do baseball tours. So they'd get on here and they'd get on the trains and they'd go all the way to uh, Chicago, all the way all, all the way to Boston on the trains, and mm. they, they'd watch games at each of the the major stops. So they you know wow. Parks and stuff. That would be so great. So he, he did it, and he goes, "It was great because they got, you know, he goes. The great thing about it is they got to meet people. Mm-hmm. So they take their little cooler, whatever, with sandwiches and books, and because he was they read a lot in cards, and they'd play cards and they'd go and meet people and be awesome. walking down and train. He's like, I could totally no stress. He's like, you know, yeah, it was a twelve-hour ride. He's like, you could sleep in your little, you know. Sometimes they get the little personal car, so they had their own little spot, and he just." sit there and then they go and they had a, I think that one he said still had like some food service or something or drink service or whatever so they go up and just mingle and talk to people and he's like I met great people yeah and he's like then he's like my dad and I he's like great time because you're big baseball fans and and they would see like I don't know five or six games on that two or three week long trip but they would just ride the train all the way from the High Line, all the way. I think it goes east, still doesn't. Oh yeah. It? So go, oh yeah. It go. goes all the way out to the East Coast. Yeah. It, so they ride all the way to the East Coast and they yeah. watch baseball. So, yeah. It's, cool. I feel. I think like with Amtrak, you can pretty much only run east west from like, um, from like Washington over to the East Coast and then uh, across the north and then in the middle you can uh, you can go from like Salt Lake City. Um, I'm not sure if from Salt Lake City, if it goes all the way to California, it probably does. But there is a, a route that runs across the middle of the country, and there's a route that runs across the south and then back. Um, and then there are, on the west coast and on the east coast, there's trains that run up and down north and south. But there's really, I don't think that there's really much in the middle. No, no. So, And like I said, it, it would just be nice for especially like, you know, when you have winter storms and that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, transit and stuff. And again, you know, again, if it were the more the not such just like like a regular rail, but more of a high speed rail and stuff. I mean, you know, if you drive to Denver, it's gonna take you eight and a half, nine hours to, with traffic now, depending on roads and everything from here. It's six hundred miles, but if you get on a train and do that in three hours, four hours, and you could be there, I mean, that's that's nothing. I mean, that's like going from here to Missoula. Yeah, you know, I think you know, there's, but I, I don't really know, and I, uh, I mean, I don't. So I'm kind of speaking out of turn on this, but I believe that what it is is people are concerned or there's industries that are concerned that, oh, that's going to quit people pulling off the interstate and uh, the money that comes into these towns or that comes into, uh, you know, all these service stations, everybody pulling off. There's a lot of money in gas and diesel and everything else. And uh, so I think there's forces. I don't know. Yeah. And that's a major concern. But I mean, again, remember this town was... What was this town first? It was a train stop. It was a train stop. So, I mean, you, you know, you got to the establishment, but again, if you just had them even where you were stopping and everything else where, you know, people get on and off, I still think you'd still have commerce. But I mean, I get it. You know, you got, you got oil industries and, you know, other stuff, but. Even if well, they didn't stop at yeah. every one of these little towns, like I get it. Maybe there was a stop in uh, uh, Billings, Bozeman, you know, the main, the main, main places, main, yeah. you know, like that would even be nice. Yeah. I would, I, would uh, I wouldn't mind going to billings to go grab the train to go someplace else or something if i had to but. yeah yeah cool well yeah that's uh, it'd be fun to have some of that kind of stuff just just you know i don't know it just somehow in my brain it always seemed like it made sense but i guess there's a lot of logistics and yeah and all the work but i mean you know again like i said uh, you know just here and i've never ridden the trains far but i've had friends and like i said our good friend he said he was great he's like you know he's like yeah it was long he's like but i didn't have any stress about driving focusing you know he's like i was drinking beer yeah, and playing two hand poker. Yeah, and 
making friends with everybody and he's very chatty so he makes friends so yeah fun. you know and it's actually a surprisingly really smooth trip uh i i i served in uh south korea for a little bit and we had to ride the trains over there a lot and they weren't that smooth they weren't that nice or or whatever and i'm they have really nice trains over there mm-hmm. but the trains that i did my my uh that i rode around on were more like subways almost um and uh they weren't that that great but one time i up on the high line this is why i've I don't have that experience with Amtrak either, but I got to ride in a, uh, this federal, it's kind of a, it's an inspection train. And what happens is that train car, the feds will, they have their own train car that comes along and measures certain things about the track. So BNSF has to provide a, uh, an engine to pull this thing through the territory. And since I was a track inspector, like as it came through my territory, I was to ride on that car with that federal inspector and it wasn't a big deal, but it was more like I then had to have another inspector out there who I could radio. So as he's measuring, it's fascinating. I couldn't believe that they could do this, but it's it's measuring things about the track as it's cruising along at 40, 50 miles an hour. And we're riding along, just floating along smooth. And there's tons of windows all over this thing and great views. And there was this big stainless steel, I guess if you called it the galley or whatever, everything's all stainless steel appliances in there. And he's like, oh, go help yourself. And I'm like, I go back there. There was like tons of food and drinks and everything in there. And I'm like, that's my tax dollars. I'm filling up, man. (laughs) So uh, we're riding on this car through there. And it was like completely like all like leather interior and just super comfortable. And uh, that guy was had the best job ever. He was just super chilled guy. And as this thing is going, and it looks like almost like a polygraph test, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's identifying the actual mile marker to a hundredth or a tenth or one thousandth of a uh, percentage on or a point for the location of where we're at. It could tell me, and then we could I could radio to somebody like, hey it's showing this can you go and physically go measure this and if so we need to get a crew out here to address this issue anyway at that point i was like this is so smooth and just this thing was just floating along it was so nice and ever since then i caught that bug and i'm like man i gotta do the high line i gotta i i watch train videos all the time Mm -hmm. about different places to go and uh yeah to go see those places but yeah, be cool. Anyways, I never get out of here. We just make yeah. breakfast burritos and watch train videos <laughs> right. on YouTube. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so like I said, that was all, all my travels there. But I came back home here in '08 is when I finally came back, and I haven't left since 2008. I haven't moved away. But uh, so I left Arizona after that. Do you ever? Do you ever get the bug to go back to working for those types of organizations and doing any of that? I mean, you're in a different phase of life now. Um, Settled down, married, kids. Yeah. Um, you know, I've thought about it. You know, the um, you know series on Netflix, Meat Eater. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, uh, I haven't. It's a, a guy out of Bozeman, um, Steve Rennell. Okay, he's I know been, that name. Yeah, he's been on with Rogan a few times. Yeah, stuff, I know but, he has um, a podcast yeah, out, yeah. out there. Well, he's out of Bozeman, and he's done a, a, a travel series, a hunting kind of series on netflix and stuff and he had a position open up there but i'd have to work from bozeman so it just doesn't work logistically and i'm not into that i mean yeah. i like that world still i mean I'm, yeah. i love hunting and stuff but i've also been a part of it so i know how much work's involved and um how strenuous it can be 
to do that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. it looks like a lot of fun and it is if you're not the cameraman and the editor. If you're just a guy that's out there just as the host and the, the hunter and stuff, your job is a lot easier than the most. You get the comfort style. You're not, you're not hauling around 40 pounds of camera gear and you're right. not doing all that stuff and, you know, getting up and editing and doing that stuff while they're sleeping. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it takes its toll. It's a lot of fun. You get to me. I mean, like I said, I, I will never say I'd regret it because it was great. I met a lot of great people. I mean, actually I kind of skipped one thing is I, I lived in Guatemala for two and a half months. Oh, really? Yeah. So when I, at, this is right after I left, uh, PSE, I came back home and, um, uh, my, my dad was, uh, sitting there again and he goes, uh, Hey, I'm going back to going back to Reno to the, the sports show and everything else. He's like, why don't you make a editing video? Maybe we can find another hunting company and pick it up. That's more local. Or you can just be like a travel cameraman to go on, you know, with people that have money to go Africa and just film their hunt and just make it for them and just make my own business. So I had a kind of a side business for a little, I, I kind of started with called Oryx productions. I made a logo and everything. I was just going to do video editing, hunting videos, you know? And, uh, I said, okay. So I made a reel and we had a friend that had a booth down there and he let me set up a little TV and I put out brochures and had a little video slideshow of some of the stuff I've done. And, um, we were walking around and there was this guy from a fishing company and, uh, he goes, we were kind of talking to him. He goes, Hey, you're a camera guy, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, uh, why don't you come and work for me for a few months? He's like, I got all these high industry fishing people going down to, to Guatemala to catch uh, billfish and marlin, everything else. He's like, just come, you know, he's like, here, you know, he's like, I'll just come, just, you know, he's like, charge him whatever you want to go out and do a day thing. He's like, just make him a little video. You think you can make him like a little video before, you know, they got a three day trip, film them for two days and on the third trip before they leave in the evening, you could just give them a disc and they could just take it home with them. I'm like, well, yeah, sure. Nah, no problem. You know? So I, uh, I flew to Miami and then I flew down to, uh, to Guatemala and I went to Guatemala city and everything else. Again, I'm seeing country I've never seen. So now oh, yeah. I'm getting my Central and South America stamp marked here too, my other continents. <coughs> Pardon me. And so I, I land and I get there and, and they drive me down and it's just, you know, it's third world country, but I mean, it's the landscape is beautiful. Oh yeah. Just, <coughs> I bet, um, you know, bulk active volcanoes everywhere. That's wild. Um, I, I think I went through like 40 or 50 small earthquakes. Wow. Just due to um, the fact that there was so much volcanic, volcanic. activity. I didn't realize there was that much uh, volcanic activity, I guess, down there. I'm going to cough real quick. <coughs> so anyways, uh, so I show up to this fishing lodge. It's all razor wire, has guards, cement, beautiful inside. I mean, it's a, a five-star place start meeting all these captains there's one from south africa there's one from uh australia there's one from new zealand there's one from hawaii the hawaii connection was kind of uh his name was uh, chris sheeter he was my favorite because his dad actually ran the um the boat rental from uh yellowstone lake okay uh, so he he so we had a little bit of a connection so we yeah. really bonded right off the bat he's like oh he's like my dad had like it was like joe's marina or something i can't remember what it is but he ran the charter where he could charter both right out of yellowstone lake up in in the park and i'm like well that's cool you know yeah and he's from hawaii and and just just great guys and uh so i spent three months uh i mean on the boat with uh, you, you've seen g loomis rods 
in the store, like yes. Shakespeare, but yes. G. Loomis, yes. Gary Loomis. I've worked with Gary and Kathy Loomis on the boat. Wow. I didn't know who they were. You know, <laughs> they show up, and I get this client list, and I'm like, Gary and Kathy Loomis, why does that sound familiar, Gary? Is that G. Loomis Rods? And like, oh, yeah, the one and only. I'm like, good. Well, they're big African hunters, so we start talking about all my Africa trips that I've been on and yeah. everything else. So I spend two days on the boat filming him and his wife catching, you know, a ton of sailfish. Were they using their own rods, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't messing around. So, and that was its, in its own thing. You know, I've, I mean, I didn't know if I was ocean sick or, you know, get seasick because I've been out, you know, rafting and boating yeah. here, but... But we were out in these boats, you know, they're 32 to, well, 20 to 32 foot fishing boats with the swing arms because they, right. they tease them in. And then what you do is you take a bait and you drop it behind the boat and you let it out. And then they, the fishing mates pop the teaser over it and they switch the bait basically. And then they bite it and you hook them. Well, they use a circle hook because that hook, like, I don't like a J hook, won't get down in the throat okay. and kill them. So what it does, it goes up and it slides but because the way it's so rounded, it catches the lip and you usually catch them. And just last. right there so they do a lot of they do a lot of they all only did catch and release okay um but you know these fish you know sailfish and i'd never seen one until the first one jumped in front of me from like 15 feet behind the boat and i'm holding a camera as it's rocking trying to you know learn my balance and how to film on the ocean which was a whole new skill set that i had to learn but i mean these fish go from 60 pounds to 180 pounds and my first day i thought we were gonna have to go way out in the ocean we were four miles from the dock. I had four guys on my boat. They caught 85 sailfish. Wow. And they set records down there. It's the number one place in the world to catch marlin and sailfish. You know, I think I, I got into a rabbit hole on uh, YouTube watching guys with sea kayaks out there catching marlin. I saw a dude catch this marlin that drug him like 15 miles out, and he had to radio in. They had to send a boat out to... Uh, he, he brought the thing. He fought it for hours oh, in yeah. a kayak. Yeah. And uh, incredible. I think the thing weighed, I can't even remember. It was like hundreds and hundreds of pounds. I, it was, um, they weighed it. I don't know how they weighed it, but they, they somehow weighed it and were able to uh, let it go. Turn, yeah. And uh, But he fought that thing for hours. I watched that whole that YouTube video. It was like 45 minutes. And then I was then I was like, I got to buy a sea kayak. And I then I went down that rabbit hole. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, that was an adventure because um, not knowing anybody in that fishing you know industry i mean i knew some names and that kind of stuff but i have i can account and attest for that i've worked for everybody really big in that big fishing world in the fishing world so um the, the owner of pen reels sold mm. his company and told me i worked with him on the boat for a day um i worked with oh my god a guy that around shakespeare rods you know ugly sticks yeah. yeah i was on the boat with him you know wow. so all these guys just came through and through because that's it, it, it's the fishing destination to go and uh, I learned a lot. I got to I actually got had so many hours on the water and helping drive the boat that I could have got my uh, boat license for those ships. You know, yeah. I could have taken the test and, and did it. Um, but I saw things out in the water that, as a kid, you never thought were real. Like I didn't think flying fish were real. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're real. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing how far they'll fly in front of the boat as you're going in the morning, like hundreds of yards. Like wow. just flying along and all of a sudden they dive. Well, that's a main bait for sailfish. They they follow them. They like they go and eat them. And I didn't think anything like, oh man, that's you know flying fish. And out there first day flying fish, second day I see um, stingrays jumping out of the water. Like just uh, just having fun. You know, the boat spooked them. And they're f flopping in the water. More yeah. more sea turtles than I ever seen. You had to dodge them. Wow. You know, and once in a while you. you 
can't dodge them, but you, you try yeah. to avoid most of them. And then I've got, I've got so much video that's on old uh, uh, digital uh, video. Um, I've got a video of a stingray that the best I can figure from wingtip to wingtip is 40 feet. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. And the only reason I can say that is because I got up in the crow's nest on the very yeah. top of the boat because I wanted to go up there and see a different view. It's the worst place in the boat to be for trying to video. Cause right, because you're... Everything at, moves. Yeah, yeah you're at the just, top, you're at the peak. Pinnacle, yeah. But I'm sitting there and every once in a while, the first time I ever saw a big manta ray like that was that I kept seeing this black fin in the distance because the water was glassy day and it was just rolling and we were just slow trolling. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's a big, big manta ray. And I'm like, how big? And he's like, oh, they get really big here. I'm like, okay, whatever. And like four hours later, we go past that same spot where we kind of saw that coordinates. And I'm on top and I see this shadow come from the side. I'm like looking and looking. And it goes behind the back of the boat. Well, it gets in line with the back of the boat because he stopped the engine. And it went right underneath the boat and came right out the back and went away from me. And it's, it had wings on either side of the back of the boat. Well, the back of the boat across was 30 feet. And it had its wings were on the back side. Run. And it was just sticking out yeah, both sides. Just slow gliding away from us. And it dove down. You know, and no wonder, like, sailors, you know, throughout history just felt like or thought that there was just sea monsters out there. That's a monster. That's a sea monster. <sighs> I mean, yeah. I mean, and you're talking about marlin guys on, on kayaks. I mean, we, I filmed several species. I blue, black. Black marlin ended up being the biggest. They're the big record holders that you see. Usually they're caught out of New Zealand. The biggest one ever caught, I think last time i looked it was like 2600 pounds wow that they caught jeez fought it for two days to reel that thing in so the way they do the fishing industry they have the leader line it's a kind of big yellow line that goes the bait and they call it a confirmed catch the fishing mate has to reach out and touch that colored line to con so like when you're reeling in a big fish to make it an official catch the mate has to touch that line so you got to bring it in far enough it's like six so feet it, long yeah so you got to bring him in close enough okay, to boat so, so that line it. isn't all that color it's when that color gets to this yep. you finally reel it into this distance and then if they can touch that color which run from like it's like six feet long so it runs from there down to the bait and that's they call that a legal catch so um, I saw guys. How are they able to? I mean, do you have any idea how they're able to weigh those things? Like, so they, they is it on tension off of the line or something? No, um, a lot of it is just a lot of the captains have caught enough fish in their lifetime. That they're they, just eyeballing it. And it's kind of looking at. I think probably okay. some ranchers can look at a, a heifer and go, "Well, that's six hundred pounds." That's okay, that makes sense. Pounds. That makes sense then. The only reason to make it an official for like a record book thing, you have to kill it. Okay, and so they were really into catch and release so they yes. don't really want to do that i mean they will if it's something like so grandeur that they're just like okay this is gonna this is gonna break the book you know yeah i think that you know they'll do it but a we'll lot of times they in. don't um because i was wondering because it, it was almost like i was like i think i missed that part in the video they were like yeah that was a such and such it was a 700 800 pound marlin or something they were mm -hmm. just saying and i was like did I miss something there? Did they did they somehow get a weight on that? Because they sounded so confident Precise. about it that they said like an exact number that I was like, oh, how'd they weigh that thing? And I kind of didn't even go back. Man, talk about fishing stories and lures. I got lots of them. But um, one of them was that uh, the first marlin I ever filmed was a, about a 300 pounder. And it just came out of nowhere and just took the line and started running with it. They were just messing, mates were just messing around. And it took that guy just because it would get up and it just did do runs where they just sit there and splash and then they disappear. And so the captain's got to put the boat in reverse and he tried to reel all that line in to get back in. Cause I mean, they'll stretch it for 
long, long time. And that took him, I think that guy, and only one guy at a time can touch the rod because if you switch rods off, it's not a legal catch. They don't officially caught, caught ah. that as a catch. So it's one guy on the, on the line. And it took him three hours to do that when it was 300 pounds. The biggest one I have on film is, best is figures about 800. Yeah. And you know, and it's the spookiest thing I've ever seen because I'm sitting there filming and we had sailfish come up because you can see their big, their fin, you know, and they glow, right. which is really another story in itself. But all of a sudden I see another wake like 10 feet behind our bait because you can see them skipping on the water. And there's this wake like being created and the captain's looking for it. And I, I tapped the captain from, he's uh, Chris from uh, New Zealand. I go, Chris, what the heck is that behind the bait? He looked around and he, all of a sudden he just goes nuts. He's like, Marlin, Marlin, Marlin. So the, the 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 mates drop a different bait back there. It's a bigger bait with a on a 50 weight rod because other rods we had were only 20 weight. He's like, I don't want to hook that thing on a 20 weight. It'll take us forever to catch it. So they, the other mate, there's three mates and they're reeling in the other lines as fast. I mean, one's doing two at a time. He's got under his wrist and he's just like this reeling him in. The other guy's dropping out the big bait. And that thing raises up and you can see the fin. I wish it would have been in the crow's nest because you would have seen how long and big he was and uh he came up and he ate it and his mouth was huge just smacked that bait down and all of a sudden that line just started just spinning off that 50 weight and uh i got video him jumping in front of the boat probably 100 feet behind the boat and i mean he is just massive big black marlin that's just incredible bang 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 and then run um it took us six and a half hours to pull him in oh my god and i gotta i gotta oh god, i gotta find my photo somewhere i got a picture because i didn't have like and the a, same guy has to stay on it same guy and his arms are just jelly he's in a rig yeah you know and he's just like his arms are just jelly he'd, he'd take breaks we'd feed him lunch because it would this fish was still hunting its own food it didn't really know it was hooked that's how big it was. It didn't realize it was being dragged in. It just knew it had to. Didn't know it was, that it was so towing a ship around. Yeah, if he did, if he didn't put any attention on it, it wouldn't try to take line, you know. And uh, so we got it in, and I got a picture somewhere, and I'm not kidding you. The eye on that thing is this big. Oh man, That'd that's got to be spooky when it comes up to the surface. Oh my! And they get alongside the boat, and it—I don't remember how big that one. Is. It was twenty plus feet, probably. Jeez. And yeah, and the cool thing about those billfish, like marlin. Um, swordfish, everything else, they have the same chemical in them as uh, fireflies. So they literally okay. glow. Wow. So when they get excited... I didn't know that. They, when they get excited, they glow. So their fins become this iridescent royal blue that when you're in the crow's nest and you see it come, you can see them coming. Um, the other one that has it is the mahi-mahi uh, or dorado. Okay. You see they're kind of the big yellow yeah. and green. They're really a pretty fish. But when they get all excited, that's what makes them so vibrant in color. They get just glow and like the fins they glow but within like five or ten minutes out of the water they turn white oh wow because all that it's like adrenaline it just kind of okay. dissipates that rush just goes away yeah but i mean it was the coolest thing to see uh, um marlin specifically when on the crow's nest if it's dark enough it looks like a snake coming at you because they're not completely a, it's not like a line down their back it's like these little dashes so and their fins glow so you got these two glowing fins going like this, and you got these like dash lines going like this at you. So it looks like a big snake coming at you. So you, I mean, like you're talking about sailors. Think about that back in the day when you're seeing yeah crazy stuff like that. And then yeah. like uh, the really pretty ones. Like I said, I, my favorite fish to eat is the mahi mahi. Yeah, I love it because we had electric grills, and so they would literally be flopping, and they would be putting those on there, and you'd eat them with uh, lime juice and rice and guacamole. Man, it was, oh man, I ate so good down there.
I love that. fish back then because it was fresh. I mean, you yeah, can't get any fresher. No, 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 no. So it was but, just uh, swimming just a f- few moments ago. But to learn all that information about you know this the bill bill fish species that they glow, incredible. I mean, that knowledge there was just life changing because you just see it, and then when you're out filming it and you're up high enough, and you start to really pick up with the captains where they they get they look at like flat water and they can tell where bait balls are, they can tell where these fish are going to be. And you start learning that, and then you start learning because as a camera, it was important to me. It took me about a month to learn it because then I knew where to put the camera because I knew action was going to happen uh, at that specific point, right? Yeah. So uh, it took a it took a lot of time, but when you learned it, man, it was so cool because you would see it. Like I, I I just went out there with some cheap sunglasses, and then uh, of course everything was being brought in. So one of the captains, I I took one of my um, tips from making these videos and everything and uh one of his clients brought me some of those uh costas okay because they blocked the light so much that right. you could really see deep and then when i got those they were it was excellent because i could because I, I mean you know how awake in a boat you can't see but they they cut enough at the right angle that if you look right you can see the fish coming up to the bait so then i knew where to hood it so i could see the the bill come up and i could see the splash down of them grabbing the bait and so i had that timing down at the end and i got really good i got really good at being able to balance the boat where my lower half of my body became my gimbal okay and i just sat there and i learned how to not like so i mean if you're watching a video and you're rocking like this the whole time you're gonna get seasick yeah. just watching the video but i learned how to do that and speak uh speaking of seasick how did you handle that going out there did that affect uh, you i you know i went out there and it didn't affect me at all i got lucky um I, I there was a couple times that we got some bad weather and we had some big big waves like 30 foot jeez it just a like a squall came in and at uh, probably not the beginning i would have been able to do this but when that squall happened i went inside the cab which everyone else was outside except for one other mate and we both were on the benches and we were sleeping oh. and the boat was just rocking that's i would be nervous i mean about i could that. feel i could feel it i mean i was doing yeah. this in my sleep but i was just i i yeah. somehow got acclimated to it but that's awesome yeah. but it was fun i mean you know it uh again just working with all those people i mean uh you'll see in the store here like mondavi wines mm-hmm. um yeah. i still have an open invitation from them to go visit their winery and stay at their at their cabin oh that's awesome. <laughs> yeah i have their business card i reach out to them every once in a while and, and email um robert mondavi yeah his yeah. wife was cool and i filmed her she they, they caught him on fly rods wow so they have 20 pound fly rides yeah and it's not like fly fishing in the general sense so what okay. they do is um they they tease the fish in because there's no hooks on the teasers and uh so they get the, the fish within about 30 feet of the boat and they stop the boat and you take the you take your fishing fly and it's been dragging behind the boat while you're teasing them up and you take one cast so you take it and you throw it out and it's this big pink usually pink or blue fly about like this okay and what the mate does is he takes that teaser and he drags it right over the top of that fly and then he pops it over the top of it well it's your bait and switch and they go and grab it but the great thing about that they're 20 feet behind the boat so when they start jumping they're on their tails 20 feet behind the boat it's the best action oh the best video. shots oh yeah and they set that hook and the man that fish goes nuts and then they're just bang 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 behind the boat and they're reeling them in and stretching the line but that fly fishing was cool just because they you got to bring them in so close wow and that's what the mondavis were doing yep yep his wife uh she she started with the traditional reels you know 20 weight reels where you just drop the bait in the water and you let the line out with your thumb and then you just hold it and then you feel the fish grab it and you just pull straight back and it hooks them so she's like 
well, my husband's catching them on fly. She's like, I don't want to be the only one not catching one on fly. I want to catch one on the fly today. So I filmed her do oh, it, wow. and I gave them the whole video. and That's awesome. And uh, everything else. And, and she was so appreciative of the video and everything else. She's like, yeah. She's like, if you ever want to do a wine tour, you know, contact me. And she's like, I'll I'll make a note of this. She's like, I won't forget you. And I'm like, she's like, I'm going to keep this DVD. So I don't know. I've, I haven't probably reached out in a couple of years, few years. But I used to email every once in a while just to kind of touch base, just to say, Maybe one day I'll go out there and do a wine tour. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's like, yeah, anytime. Yeah, those aren't these aren't experiences that you just have every day, you know. No, no. Yeah. that was cool. So, like I said, I mean, my life experience, you know, up to that point, I mean, I've been on several continents. I've seen things that, I mean, not a lot of people have. I've seen, you know, you know, humanity at some of its worst. You know, seeing, you know, when you're in Africa, you're you know third world country i mean mexico isn't even at that level in parts but i mean you get to really it really opens your eyes up to how blessed we really are yeah and how grateful we should be for the things we have because i mean you see in real life it it's different and then when you when you're like me i got more of it because i wasn't just staying in a hotel i mean i was out in with the people so you really get to see the the harsher ends of that part of life and how difficult it could be if you were if you were there for sure yeah yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible how uh, uh, some people live and the things that, well, like you say, the things that we take for, for granted here, uh, but then when you get out there, it's incredible to, to see that there's a good portion of the world's population that lives at a different level. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. I haven't, I haven't been out to those types of places and seen that type of poverty, but uh, at least not firsthand there. So uh, it's got to be, I don't know, gotta, it's got to affect you. Oh, yeah. No, like I said, it, it, it helps you grow. As a person, I think, you know, because like I said, uh, you know, Guatemala was no better. I mean, bad drug trade because, I mean, yeah, in Guatemala, I mean, uh, there's a landing strip behind our house. And uh, I forgot to say, I was, kind of felt safe there because the Navy was there, too. It was off the, I think it's uh, San Jose port. There was a Navy ship off the deck. So when I'd go in, I'd take rides in the town and I'd get little charge phones, little cards so I could call back home every once in a while. I had Internet. I could still email. Um, but I ran in a bunch of Navy guys, you know, on the bar. I went and got a haircut one day, and there was these, uh, it was, uh, God, I think it was his name, Mike something. But he was a, cap, not a captain. Oh, I can't think of it. Anyways, he was an upper-ranking officer in there. And he gave me his business card, and he goes, how long are you going to be down here? And I go, well, you know, I got probably till right before Father's Day. I was going to be there and go home for Father's Day. And he goes, well, he's like, if you ever get in trouble, he's like, this card on this phone, he's like, I'll send, he's like, I'll send the SEALs for you. <laughs> I went, hey, what? That, that's uh, backup. Yeah. He's like, he's like, he's like, he, I'm like seals. He's like, well, probably not the seals. But he's like, I'll send some high level officials to come get you. But yeah, he gave me his direct cell line onto his boat that if I needed a SOS call, like stuff was happening and I didn't feel safe or something was going down, just, you know, drug trade or whatever yeah. was going to happen. He's like, call this number. He's like, I'll have a boat. Were you tempted to just call it and see what, uh, um, what you, you I didn't think, I didn't think it was one of those games you want to be like, like, uh, was it uh cry wolf kind of thing? I don't know if that was kind of the, kind of the game I wanted. Just when to they all showed that. up, just hit the stopwatch and be like, good. Hey, that was a good showing guys, but I think you can do better. Let's, uh, let's yeah. do, let's try this again. All right. Let's have a better attitude about it. Yeah, I know. I, that'd have been fun to try, but I, I didn't. I, ah. didn't. I was, I, I had it on there and, um, I, I saw him another couple of times cause they would when they took leave and stuff they would come yeah. in and and again they would get seafood and there's little shops and stuff and and actually the antigua which is kind of a city central is a big european destination it's right in below uh, an active volcano 
and it's a city center it's got cobblestone streets it's got little coffee shops and all kind of stuff so there's a lot of europeans in that area when i went there so um, did they they learn nothing from pompeii oh these little cities right at the base of active volcanoes but but they i they rely on it because like they they collect jade and um obsidian and they carve these magnet you know like dolphins and yeah. stuff gifts and that kind of stuff so they really rely on it um there's lots of earthquakes i went through lots of little tremors you know little ones and stuff because they there was in that area there was 12 active volcanoes that you could see when you're out at, at sea you could see them smoking and sometimes they didn't and i i slept through lots of them so people were like did you feel that tremor and i'm like no no it, i can sleep on a um, i can sleep on a fishing boat yeah, out there yeah. so yeah i know so like i said it was uh kind of interesting uh the other kind of funny story was i didn't realize that um you know how like like you you know you created something like i created something with my banners and kind of stuff where someone goes and they kind of take your idea and like oh i'm just gonna do what he does because he's making money let's let's do what he does yeah no more so than guatemala there's this place called boot row and uh so it's this little place just outside uh antigua and the captain goes hey he's like i'm gonna go get you some custom-made croc skin cowboy boots i'm like really he's like oh yeah i'm like i can't afford that and he was like i got gotcha. you he's like you're gonna want to see this so what happened was one guy made a little hut you know probably the side of your studio uh-huh. and started making boots got so popular that he was making a lot of boots so a guy that was walking by one day goes well that guy's making boots so he builds a shop right across from him and opens up a boot store they did that for five years there was 35 boot stores next to each other they all made boots and they all would squabble to see who could you know you could barter with them because they wanted the business but because one guy made boots that guy goes well he's making money making boots i'm gonna make boots yeah he's gonna make money starts up a whole district yep and then he starts you know like i'll undercut him you know and uh i didn't bring him home that's incredible i had a pair of uh white belly croc skin boots custom made wow They, they measured my foot they had skins and everything else, and uh, before I left, I um, I bartered it for with one of the captains. I didn't bring it home. I kind of felt a little guilty. I'm like, I don't know if I can legally bring these in because I don't think Croc skin boots were. I don't know. I don't know if they were legal. I mean, I think they. I think you can have them now, but I don't. I was afraid to because yeah. I hadn't made a country. I'm like, but my captain's like, just wear them home. He's like, they're not gonna go. Hey, did you have those made in Guatemala? And I'm like, no one's gonna know. But they're fake. Yeah. I don't even They're have synthetic. a picture of them, but they have as cool as the really. What them. like what did those and what did those cost? Do you think? Um, I rem- to oh. have those guys make them there. Um, okay, so this is where it gets bad. <laughs> so we bartered because there's 35 of them. I I didn't speak enough Spanish. I learned it better as I got there because what we get taught here in our schools, when yeah, you get down there, it's rudimentary. They only right. get to about third grade, so yeah. it's very slang. Yeah. And they know what you want. Like if you ask like, you know, something like piece, you know, like I want a pen, they know it, but that's not their word for it. So yeah. unless you speak their language, they're like, yeah. we're done, you know? Um, so I think when we ended up getting done, I think those custom made Croc skin boots, American cost us like 80, oh. 85 bucks. Yeah. Those would have cost so much oh, to have somebody thousands. do that. Yeah. Thousands. And custom. Yeah. It would have cost, it would have cost a lot. Oh man. Incredible. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. It was a fun time. Yeah, and then uh, I left there and came back home, and um, so that would have been oh, so that's oh six, seven, eight. So I went back in eight. So back here, and I went to actually I did the Guatemala trips before I went to yeah. But um, yeah, I just uh, kind of dra- bounced around, and then I got back home, and 
I worked for a production company out of Billings in, after, in 08. I got yeah. a job there. It was Production West. They're not there anymore. There was a duplication company. So taking your Chia Pet ads and adding phone numbers and scripting them out and sending them all over the country so they could run their you know ads i mean we got free samples every year i had piles of chia pets yeah and like of gloves and yeah. and the clapper right you know all that kind of stuff so i mean it was it was a job for a while but wow know, it's I, interesting that it that just having that skill that background i mean how many different areas you've gotten into and the exposure that you get though by just having that experience or that initial experience okay now where does this take you and it's kind of like taking you all over the place it sounds oh yeah yeah no my like i said that's that's the story pretty much in my 20s right up until well all my 20s because um when i started working with silversmiths i was about 30 i turned 30 so um yeah so i spent my 20s right out of school just kind of not knowing what to do when my my degree kind of fizzled out and was kind of up in the air and i didn't know what to do with it and it's led me along a lot of places a lot of cool places i mean things I've gotten to do and see and experience some scary some fun you know I mean Africa has this this, its own experience I mean like I said lions and everything else but I mean we had run-ins with you know guards and everything else and they're holding eight k's and I mean it's yeah I mean there's danger there I mean the lioness was you know she stopped for me to uh, uh, me to your door here like 10 yards yeah and she came out of nowhere it was no grass it was it was the the winter time so it was no grass and she came out of nowhere on a dead run at us and we were in the truck and wow. she only stopped because she got the truck the truck was bigger than her like a lot bigger she could have kept coming my only plan was i was sitting in the middle seat in the back bench and this ranger i was just gonna duck down because there was a guy here and a guy here yeah. and i was just hoping that the line would go over and go either short and hit this guy or go long and get the guy on the backside and leave me alone because i don't have a weapon <laughs> yeah and it was just the same time that all the all the guys had taken their guns and they put them in their sleeve bags and put them on the rack in front of them they didn't have them out Oh, so man. I mean, we were the only All one that had ducks. the only one we had a gun was was the uh, park ranger behind us, and he had like a 1957 rusted AK-47. I don't know if they they traded bullets between each other. Like I mean, it's if it fired, I'd be shocked. You know, I mean, like the barrel was had rust on it. I mean, oh it's man, just, like you're going, well, you know, it's gonna work. <laughs> That's why that gun I think has been so popular, though. That thing can just be so mistreated, wow. and it just keeps working, keeps going. That's He's ticking. Incredible. But yeah, so like I said, there was there's a lot of experiences that you get to kind of see when you go through all that stuff. Wow. From high end to low end. I mean, I've been to the I've seen the tops of the world with the guys that I've hunted with, you know, they're just I mean, you know, they're very wealthy, very nice and but you get to see the top scale and then I also get to see the you know, the worst of yeah. the worst parts too. So but uh, it does make you grow for sure. Yeah. Oh wow. Um and so now it's like I've uh I just I'm so glad that we talked about all this stuff. I, I didn't really understand what all your background was. I didn't really know much about you. I, I, uh, uh, after talking to you one day at the window and you said, Hey, yeah, I, I, I saw your podcast and I like your podcast. I, I asked April about you and she was like, Oh yeah. Like I grew up with him and I'm, I'm like, and I was like, Oh, I need to go check out his website. You gave me your card. And I went and I looked at it and I was like, Oh, this guy's like putting out all kinds of quality stuff. And I just felt like, how do I not know? I felt like, how do I just not know, like, <laughs> right? how do I not know about this? You know what I mean? Like, it, so it's it's interesting to be able to uh, sit down and, and just find out about some of the people right around right around us, you know, while I'm sitting oh, yeah. there cooking at that place and uh, don't get to, to figure all this 
all this stuff out with people. You know, and I think your podcast is great and you do great too, but just reaching out and finding those members, because I think just in our conversation we had for this, I mean, I think we've talked for eight hours a day almost. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know how many, but yeah. you know, the thing is though, you can collaborate now. You can call yeah. them and be like, Hey, I got this idea. I need some help here. I just don't have the time. Can you do this? this? And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I can help you out. No problem. Yeah. You know, no, I'm that, excited about it. Being, being a collaboration, I think makes business is stronger and makes people stronger because you build relationships and like i said i i want to set up a coffee hour like you and cole and i and everyone can sit down for two hours every week and we could bs about everything oh yeah uh, that'd be awesome you know and that's why it's also great to get to know like what is all your background your experience and your influences and what what makes you tick and what do you like to do versus uh what do you just do to get by or or whatever um that's important stuff to know so yeah i'm excited about it i'm gonna i'm, I'm excited to to hear all of this and know what you're into and uh because i'm like already i was we were talking earlier my mind's already cranking thinking about like oh that's exciting there's some real possibilities here um man there's some things we could we could maybe collaborate on and work on and that's yeah i'm excited about it yeah and like i said i mean we we've got all kinds of tangents today but i mean like even just photography wise i mean my skill sets are, are pretty broad and it's this year's a development yeah you know um uh, and I think that's with anybody. I think what separates you, especially in a creative industry like that, photography, is just how much skill you bring to it, how much expertise you know, and uh, that really separates you, you know. And I've got lots. I mean, yeah. I've got years. I, I mean, just in photography, really, I take my first actual promo ad photo was in 08. Yeah. And till now, uh, so I kind of call that my establishment date. I didn't have sensory photography. It wasn't my company yet. It wasn't either. I was trying to do, like, candid photography. And I couldn't find anything because all those websites were taken. Everybody used Candid, right? So okay. I, ended up, I ended up going to a thesaurus and I found Sensory and it's that's the awesome. same thing. So that's, that's kind of how my name got, it's kind of got its start and, and went that way. And, and uh, I've been doing it for then. So what is your, uh, what's kind of your favorite thing to shoot photography wise? Um, I really like commercial. Um, I didn't know I'd like it as much as I did. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I was kind of telling you that um, through the pandemic and everything and, and going full time back in 20 and a 20 um it was something i learned through i had a mentor that was kind of helped me establish myself because i was just part-time i didn't know i didn't know if i was good enough to be honest like am i good enough to do this and, and uh, making that kind of and, that transition from videography over to photography yeah and and when you i found someone out of bozeman and um did you feel like it was kind of starting over going from videography to photography um it is it is it's a definitely different it's a change it's it's not it's similar but it's not the same yeah um, you know, and now, like I said, it's so hard because I, I am a purist. <laughs> I, when I shoot video, I want a video camera. I mean, my, my camera now has the ability to, but I just don't, it's, it's, it's foreign to me in that form. It's just not what I use it for. I use it for photography. Um, I could learn it and I, I need to learn it that direction. Cause that's how it's going. But, um, yeah, I, it, it's a hard transition. I mean, yeah. lighting's lighting is an element is you got to learn that's its own science i've uh, and i just you know i'm a complete amateur but i've spent a lot of time trying to learn just some basics you know and that's what separates i mean um majority of photographers anywhere and everything else a lot of them just shoot natural light which it's great natural light's great because you, you got the sun you don't have to learn yeah too much other than you can't have someone looking into the sun with their eyes squinted, right? And that's a big one. No, no. But once you learn how to do that kind of stuff and shoot natural light, um, it's a great starting point. I can do it. I love it. I mean, at certain times, it's, it, it does. It keeps, especially for uh, shooting females, soft. 
makes everything soft everything softens her face softens like with use light like here it can create a hard light where you get really hard edges and women don't want to see hard edges they want soft you know beautiful yeah. elegant luxury you know so you kind of have to learn to light it but you can it's just learning how to use that stuff and, and how to set it up and do that stuff so i do both worlds um i do um favor more being a having portable strobes and and being able to light even when i'd shoot out door stuff i i generally will shoot kind of both but um i really like being able to light things and be able to really make you know the downside like when you shoot outside with natural light like say if it's a bright day you have to open and move your shutter so fast that everything behind it's blown out you can't see the background which yeah. is great if you want like a white soft uh, background you can create that uh, look but if you wanted to have the mountains in focus and everything else you got to throw a light in there because you got to speed up your shutter and you got to throw some light on the subject because they're going to be with the light behind them otherwise they're going to be in shadow and if you don't have a light to throw out there you're not going to see them yeah so, the, and I mean, the one thing i have found yeah. too is I, I find difficult is like sometimes like the best or best times of year to shoot is also when um, like let's say you got spring colors and you got all just beautiful there's snow on the mountains but everything is still green and um and i the little shooting that i do outside like all the colors are so bright and crisp but then you that's the time of year that we have the most just cloud cover just that comes and goes comes and goes and i'm like waiting i find out times i'm sitting here trying to shoot something outside and like three minutes from now i got cloud cover for 10 minutes and then i've got you know i'm sitting here trying to make some consistency mm -hmm. in all my cuts and i'm shooting a video or i'm whatever and it's just going back and forth from dark to light dark to light mm -hmm. oh and that's video world too for sure yeah. it's, it's photography world because um my favorite time they you know your best light is towards evening later yeah. light or very first morning light it's because you don't want anything direct you don't want harsh shadows you don't want that bright light um but again you know shooting with stuff that's moving because i mean i've shot middle of the day too where you got some cloud cover it's awesome wait for that cloud to block the sun yeah you can get everything you want and then that cloud moves in and you got to wait no well, okay we got about five minute break here you know okay let's shoot this but if you can find a way to utilize both worlds where when you have those bright things you move them into a shady spot yeah and then throw a light on them yeah you can get the same effect yeah and and that's all learned i mean i photography i a video i had a background in i did it in school so i knew that kind of lighting but it's different it's cinema lighting it's yeah. you know on all the time so it's a little bit different to to do it on the spot and being able to have the equipment to do it because i mean it is a lot of equipment i mean now everything's so much better i mean we never used to do high speed sync before where you can shoot above 200 200th of a second because flashes can never burst enough light and stay in focus where you could shoot higher than that well now you can go up to eight thousandths of a second really yeah you can get your light to strobe it it pops three times so you don't have a dark spot where wow. your shutter because your shutter's moving so fast that if it's moving this fast you gotta have enough light to hit quick enough so then it captures otherwise you're gonna have like a you see sometimes you might see where you get like a black bar it's because that shutter is closing uh -huh. up and down which i i haven't been able to play with mirrorless but it's got to work the same way I, it doesn't have a shutter that goes in front of the mirror to take that picture but um and i'm sure they don't have that trouble because it's brand new technology yeah and, and like, i i don't get into any of that like with my yeah. stuff i don't really know anything about that i i put up a stationary light i light it so i can see it how it's going to look and i make all my adjustments you know to it right. from there but it's one thing i've i've thought about trying to get into a little bit um 
I just haven't pulled the trigger on any of it, but I know there's a whole other science there to learn. Oh, I mean, um, like even your, your, I mean, your studio lights are great too, but like we used to do this, it was an old trick, we'd just go get a dimmer switch hmm. and then you could just dim how much power is going in. Like if you didn't want it so bright, you could dim it down a little bit. Yeah. And then you could set your camera settings to adjust for that. But if you wanted it softer or lighter, you could just, I mean, it was a, what, $3 dimmer switch. You just yeah. plug it in and ramp it up or down to block how much power is going in and out. So uh-huh. it was a, it was the DIY, yeah. how to uh, dim your lights if they were too too bright. And now too, I once I've discovered because uh, I I'm I, I'm such an amateur at all this, but then when I finally discovered ND filters and variable ND filters, mm-hmm. I love those things. I use them for everything now. So um, that's helped me out too. Yeah, it's um, real fun to get like an ND ten, like you put it on on your lens if you can't you can't see your subject through the camera, but it's blocking you know 10 stops of light and you do it in like waterfalls like you know I've taken oh, okay light. to make the, that yeah. smooth flowing yeah. image yeah and then like i said and then you take it and then picture you know probably sometimes 10 stops i, I think one last time i took this year when the big uh, flow over at uh, natural bridges mm-hmm. i did a 10 with a 10 stop filter and it was like a three or four second exposure in the middle of the day wow that's how much light it blocked but when it got done it was perfectly balanced. You had this beautiful, soft veil. I mean, waterfall just coming down. Everywhere it hit was soft, all smooth. It's got its own look, but it's yeah. it's fun. Wow. And like I said, you don't. Did you, you shoot that it. from down low at that, or were oh, you yeah. up high? No, I uh, I walked around and um, I found all the way down the bottom, all the way down to the yeah. base. My wife, I think on my That's Instagram. That's a beautiful spot. My wife's got an Instagram picture she took from behind me, me setting up, taking it because the water was so bad. I mean, we were there on June. 12th because it was my wife's birthday there was no water flowing over natural bridge okay i woke up that morning and everyone said oh my god everything's flooding that's when the, all the water hit oh that was last year's flood yeah and okay. on, on the 13th less than 24 hours we were there at like at one like noon on the 12th less than 24 hours later it was blowing over the top of that and thing. it was coming off the top top over the top i've I mean, never been so there much, to see it come so off much the top. water i had i've i've photographs it twice I did it in 19 when it did that and i got some pictures of it from down low and from above and then this last year i did it, it was twice as much water wow. it was it was it was dirty water because the, the yeah, first year in 19 is kind of it was more white but it was just brown yucky water so i slowed it down and you can see the colors and i i colored it some in photoshop i kind of left it natural just to kind of show it's like this is raging water yeah but i mean it was horrible because down below the the farms down there we left them and they were sandbagging they were underwater wow i mean it was just so much it was just the perfect it was the perfect storm that whole situation the melt i didn't even think to go out there to see that and like I said, I, I know it flowed like that over the top of that falls for like a, a week or two almost. It was still going to the top. But, I mean, so much water. Because there's that big hole that takes it all down. Yeah. For that to have enough flow and then to have pass it come up the top, that hole. it was and it had actually blown so much water that there was little holes from the pressure. It must have been eaten through the rock. It was making other little running waterfalls down like little holes that I think is just erosion. But it was so powerful. Wow. Just incredible. I mean, literally a day. Because my wife's like, oh, it's my birthday. And I said, well, let's just go over there and take a look. I'll take some pictures. And so I have I have, I have, have a spot on my Instagram. I took a picture of the exact same spot on the 12th and on the 13th. And you would never believe that it was a day apart. Less than a day apart. Probably 12 hours because it happened in the middle of the night. 
Wow. Have you done a, have you put them side by side? Yeah, I think I do. I think it might be my Instagram. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was crazy. Wow. Huh. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, well, I'll have to reschedule that. My dog was supposed to go to the vet. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. Oh man. I'm sorry. We no, kind of, no, we, we kind of hooked up earlier today and then just got chatty about all kinds of things. And, uh, this is one of the rare times when I'm actually able to, uh, this is a Wednesday. I'm never usually like right now I'm supposed to be in bed. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, this is like super late for me on a usual basis, but, uh, I have, uh, this week I've got some time on my hands here. So it's actually kind of nice to feel a little normal. It it really feels nice to feel normal, like with the time and not be like panicking over, Oh, it's four 37 PM. Like, Holy crap. I'm like two hours behind getting in bed. So, oh, well. Yep. Oh, wow. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, to, to come and share some of these experiences with me. I, I'm excited. I Now I'm, my brain's going to go a little crazy. Um, and uh, I would. I would I would love to figure out some type of collaborations we could do here in the future. And I feel like, um, I don't know, I'm excited about it. I feel like there's some cool things yeah, and sure. uh, I'd love to be a part of with you. And uh, and it is. It's, it's kind of neat to learn about local people who are got got all kinds of interesting backgrounds and things that they're passionate about and uh it's kind of fun to be able to just sit down and just take the time and just talk about it yeah for sure i'm down with the coffee hour too man for sure it'd be fun give me an invite to that yeah yeah we'll do that for sure so uh cool man well i'm sure this is not the last time we're going to talk i feel like i I still have a lot more to get into with you um but i appreciate you coming and doing this man no i i I really appreciate this great opportunity thank you yeah man really cool 